think about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Cage My IQ. As you see, I am not alone this time. Let's welcome back my co-host, Miles Long. How is it going, Miles Long? It's good. It's good. It's been a hot minute. Uh, Better shape than I was last time. Got some changes, you know, just around. New place. Got a puppers now. So, no, life is good. Life is good. Uh, we got a fun card coming up, it looks like. I know. I'm going to be able to get you on a couple of uh, cards before, of course, you go away again with your teaching job. Congrats <laughs> on that. But yeah. before we get into this 15-fight card, we got this packed leaden uh, fight night that's going to be on in the morning into the afternoon, which is crazy for us over here in the States. But before that, I got a couple things to plug. Of course, we got the... Cage My IQ. You can follow us on social media at Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitch. We are also partnered with the Bloodline Entertainment Network. You can find all of our content on there on the YouTube channel at Bloodline ENT. You can find it on Instagram. You can find it on the Twitch channel. We see right there at Bloodline ENT. We just hit 50 followers on Twitch on Bloodline ENT so we can start getting ready to upload the videos soon. And of course, please do us a favor, smash the like button down below and hit the subscribe button on both the Cage My IQ YouTube channel and on the Bloodline Entertainment Network's channel. And please leave a comment in the comment section. Let me know what you think of our picks and predictions and let me know what you're going to go with with a betting standpoint because I'm going to be putting out Cage's bet slip tomorrow afternoon. We were riding on a three-week high on a plus unit streak. We're doing good right now. Let's keep the streak going. And, of course, we also got the merch out now. We got the Cage My IQ merch on FirstFirst.shop. We got the, of course, Sheared and Sword and Sheared logo there. We got the new one that just came out, so we're going to come out with more content but you can find the Sword and Shear logo on firstfirst.shop in the Cage My IQ uh, collection. All you got to do is go to the link in the bio to check it out. So definitely buy it now while you can. Uh, before we get into the predictions, uh, what are your thoughts on this card right now? We got 15 fights. It's very yeah. hit here and there. Luckily, yeah. not that many fights got canceled, which is unusual nowadays. <laughs> I know, right? Especially you hear about that shit in PFL with like 10 fighters all getting yes. like flagged for all. Oh, that was crazy. Even PFL and was that, like, yeah, we got to bring you side in on this shit. This yes. is getting too much. Yes. <laughs> but now this card, like, it's kind of mixed because like you go through the, the prelim card and you got some like big names. Like they buried Vieira, uh, Ketlin Vieira in the prelims. Yeah. And then you got, you know, what you expect, a couple of newcomers here and there. But there is a, a kind of a shocking turn for me. No Patty Pimlet and no Makayev. 
Those are two yeah. huge draws for any London card. Nowhere to be found on the card. I heard that uh, Patty Pimlet injured his ankle. I think he had some surgery, so he's out. And Makayev, I think it's because he didn't tap in that last fight against Filo, yes. and he fucked uh-huh. his knee up good. Like he couldn't even walk on it. So dumbass. Now you know you just missed another big payday. Yeah, um, yeah Wait, with no, lot- I mean, kind of, kind of kills it a little bit, you know. Yeah, with a lot of fighters now, I think it's a lot of it. It's the conditioning, taking the fights on short notice. You got guys instead of doing the, the standard three month wait, they have to get that four fight camp. They're doing one month. They're doing two months. Sometimes just a couple weeks, and I think that's what's affecting them. And, but it's like we've been saying the last year they got to do a better job of having backup plans. It's kind of hard to do that, but you got to be able to do it. That's why you've seen a lot of call-ups from the regional scene and luckily in mma there's so many regional uh promotions that they're either pull up from there or use the dana white contender series to fill it and then it's been very noticeable in the last six months of how much they've had to utilize that yeah yeah for sure i mean i think part of it is kind of how some of these fighters train um i feel like uh sparring is a really big controversy when it comes to training camps Because a lot of these guys want to go super hard. And then what happens? They fuck themselves up. You know, you get an injury and then you just got to pull out at the last minute. Um, Instead, it should be more like, you know, sparring to improve a skill, right? Like you set, put five minutes on the clock and say like, hey, man, um, I need to work on, you know, slipping the cross. So feed me some crosses every once in a while, but let's go 75%. What do you need to work on? And then if you keep it like that, you get the benefit of sparring. But, you know, you're not necessarily taking all that risk because every time you spar, you are taking a risk that you will get yeah. injured and you can't fight. But if you're going to put that risk in there, then you got to have the return. But I, I think a lot of fighters take that risk with no, no compensative return, you know. A last piece of news before we get right into the first fight. Uh, UNC, I mean, UFC Nashville has taken a hit with the main event. Uh, Umar Nurmagomedov has to pull out. From the fight due to uh, something to do with his uh, injury in camp. So we don't know who's going to replace him against Corey uh, Sanhagen. But I hope it's announced soon since they have less than two weeks uh, before that fight card. (laughs) And and that's the main event. So we'll keep you guys updated on that. But otherwise, let's get started with the first fight on the card. We got... um, a men's flyweight matchup between Jafel Filo versus Daniel Barres. We got Filo's the minus 120, and then we got Daniel Barres, the minus 105. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight? Yeah, I mean, I can I can kind of see why they have it as a pick if you're just looking on paper, right? Like Filo, he's the incumbent UFC vet. He's got the experience advantage. He's got good striking. Um, and when he hits the ground, he is hunting for submissions. He doesn't just go to his back and sit there. He's constantly having you solve problems until he gets you or he's back on his feet. Uh, so his gas tank is definitely no problem. I brought up how he messed up Makayev's knee. Like, honestly, Makayev should have tapped. He, he, he won that fight when Makayev was willing to sacrifice the leg just to secure the submission at the end. Um, yeah, but sometimes he's too quick to accept the bottom position on the ground. That's that's kind of the main thing I'm seeing. That's an issue with him. He's also not really like a power striker in the flyweight division. Um, he's he's just good at kind of keeping it moving, uh, keeping it light, and then just touch, 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 placing the shots. Well, Barra's on the other hand, super aggressive. 
Like if you saw his Dana White contender series, he's a dog. He just goes out there. He doesn't even give a shit if he gets tagged. He's willing to trade. Um, he could take some punishment. So, I mean, in that, in that one fight from the contender series, he almost got finished a couple times, but he ate it and just kept on going. Uh, but he's still green. You know, part of that is that he rushes a little too much and he gets himself into trouble sometimes. You know, he sees opportunities and he's capitalizing, but he's not necessarily thinking about, okay, I need to be thinking about the counter to the counter. Like if I mess up and this guy takes advantage, how can I find my way out and keep going? Um, most of his losses are by decision uh, and he's got uh, two by submission. So like when I look at this fight, the pick'em comes from the fact that Fujilo could potentially submit Barres. Like he's constantly moving, constantly catching those submissions. But Barres could come out super heavy and just put him away early. So it's kind of hard to see which way it's going to go. Personally, because of that rushing that Barres does sometimes, the way he kind of puts himself into that kind of danger, that plays into Fieldho's his game plan. And he's durable enough, I think, to take most of Barres' punches. But ultimately, it's going to come down to see what happens in that first round. You know what I mean? Now, because it's kind of a pick em, you know, it's kind of hard to put money on, on either one of these guys because there's not a big return either way, really. So, I mean, I would wait till after the first round and play the live odds and wait for that swing. But ultimately, yeah. I think Velo can pull out a submission, maybe late second, third round, right when he's gotten his feelers out there, he's taking his reads, and then Barres charges in, makes a big mistake, and Velo makes him pay for it. Yeah, I, th I think just to add on uh, to what you said, because you said it perfectly well with uh, both of their styles, I think it's going to come down to with Barres, with him being green and being his, so, so much built-up energy, I think where Velo can take advantage of it is the just overextending on the punches because Barres is going to be striking. He's going to be the guy staying up and Velo. He can strike. He's a little bit more technical with it, but he's going to prioritize the grappling side of things and getting the fight to the ground, just like he said. He did well with Makaya, but then at times he's too happy to get the fight to the ground where he'll accept bottom position. But he's not going to have to worry about the with Barres too much because Barres is going to want to stand up. That's where Philo's wrestling will come into play. I, I could see him clinching up along the cage, body locked the leg trip to get him down, and to just do work there and try and keep him from standing because he's going to get pieced up from the from power punching from Barres. But I could see him taking him down and waste a little bit of Barres' energy and look for that submission. And just like you said, I could see a round two or round three submission, most likely the rear naked choke because he's going to look to take the back of him. But I'm definitely siding with the Philo uh, side of things on this one because I feel like just that grappling – it's going to play a big factor. And we've seen with Barres on the regional scenes, he's very, uh, not easy, but he's able to be taken down. He doesn't have the best takedown defense. And as long as Philo doesn't get into like a, a striking battle, he should be able to duck, take him down with the, the wide punches of Barres and be able to control him on the mat. So, yeah, I'm going to go with the round, round two uh, rear naked choke by Philo in this one. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're looking at a prop bet, definitely go like over 2.5 rounds. Like, yeah. I think there's a pretty good chance this goes past the halfway point. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, th this one's going to be a good one no matter what happens. I think yeah. these two guys, they're both dogs. Like, yeah. it's going to be fun. And with it, with it being like a 50 50 fight, there's better odds for the over on this one. 
And sometimes it won't be because they're trying to get you on the opposite side. Like, oh, it's going to be 50 50 fight. Maybe because right. of the decision. But with how, like, their contrasted styles, you might be able to get lucky on this one. So, like, the over a two and a half will definitely be, should be even. And then, even if, even if you think, like, I think Philo should be able to win by decision or by submission, maybe you do one prop that they usually put out now is. They, they put together round three or decision mm-hmm. and they put it together and then you can play yeah. that just to cover yourself with later in the fight if Boris yeah. towers out and then gets tapped or if it goes the decision so you kind of you kind of get both rolled into one and usually you get a good prop on that one yeah but let's move on to the second fight on the prelims we have a women's strawweight matchup between Bruna Brazil versus Sharna Bannon. Uh, Brazil is the minus 130 favorite. You got Bannon. She is the plus 105 underdog. What are your thoughts on this one? This one, this one's a little interesting for me, actually, because like I couldn't find much on Bannon. Her per- professional career is extremely short. It's only five fights. She is undefeated. Yeah. She has a deep amateur career, but it's very difficult to dig up any old fights. If you go to UFC Fight Pass, her last fight was Invicta 50. They've only uploaded yeah. until, I think, Invicta 49. So Bannon is kind of an unknown variable here. Uh, at least we have some information on Brazil. She's got a much longer pro record. She has three decision losses. Um, in terms of her wins, it's kind of a nice even distribution. You got three KOs, two subs, three decisions. Maurice um, Bannon's kind of the new fighter, much longer amateur record. Uh, only three losses in her earlier amateur career, though. Um, two decision victories. Oh, I'm sorry, two decision losses and one submission loss. Uh, eight decision wins, five KOs, and four submissions. So even Brazil is kind of hard to find some information from. We do have the contender series matchup. But one thing for sure, I feel like both of these fighters. Um, are more decision fighters. And that tends to be a lot more common inside of the women divisions where um, it's very difficult to get someone who has like knockout power at every punch. Um, Brazil also, of course, being Brazilian, has the grappling advantage a little bit in the jiu-jitsu department. But Bannon being undefeated, being uh, from what I hear, she's a very strong striker. Uh, so between the two, she probably has the advantage of the hand. So we have that classic matchup between the good, strong striker and then kind of the more well-rounded but leaning towards the grappling department. Um, so it'll come down to can Brazil, you know, take it to the ground when she wants to, keep it on the cage when she's overwhelmed, and ultimately kind of wear down this newcomer, which, you know, whenever it's your first fight, you're always full of energy. Uh, a lot of the time in boxing, they talk about do less than you think you should because you're going to do way too much and you burn yourself out because you're excited about your debut. It's new. You're professional now, and it's, you know, it's a whole thing. So I think Bannon, you know, being the greener of the two fighters, she might not necessarily be prepared for the long haul fight. She is a decision fighter, but that's within amateur bounds. We're talking about professional and we're talking about at the UFC level. So I think if you're like looking to put some money, probably it's going to go the distance. So if you're looking at that three uh, third round or, you know, all the way to the end kind of prop bet, that'd be a good one. This is a, another one because there's so many unknowns. I'd play the live odds and just kind of watch what's happening and make a decision as the fight goes. Um, but ultimately, I think uh, at the end of the day, experience will kind of win the day. And we're probably looking at uh, Brazil 
most likely by decision, but she could get real sneaky and sneak a submission in there. Yeah, in her last fight, uh, fight of course, she fought uh, Denise Gomes, and now the fight looks good. She was uh, she went to that fight a heavy favorite against Gomes, and Gomes finished her in that fight, I believe, in the first round. And then now you see, was it last week, Gomes went and beat Yergrai, who was the favorite on Gomes as well, mm-hmm. and she finished her too. So it's like, okay, maybe that looks good for Brazil now because how good yeah. Gomes has looked. Where Brazil comes in, she has power in her hands, but just like you said, she has that jiu-jitsu style that she relies on at times and that the heavy hands don't work. But then you got Sharda Bannon. She has that boxing background, The, of course, uh, Irish uh, SBG. She uh, trains there from time to time. She has the nice technique with her hands. She's all about the volume. She's not going to hit you with power like Brazil is, but she's going to had the volume and then she does have grappling too uh she but it's more of a wrestling grappling than the jiu-jitsu side and i see this going e- either way i see either brazil uh knocking her out or i could see banning using that volume and using that takedown defense to stop uh brazil from clinching her up against the the cage because she does have that grappling background as well i think those kind of negate each other out so to me I'm gonna with the, with the both styles. I'm gonna side with the underdog. I'm gonna side with Bannon just because of the volume count, because mm-hmm. she could get hit and she could get knocked out. Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that she, she has good technique. She's the more accurate puncher. She'll put in volume, and it's always the fact of okay, the volume's gonna win unless she gets knocked out. Right. But and I do feel like she can stop any of the grappling attempts to clinch along the fence. The game Brazil more of a close up striking, and I think Bannon's the better perimeter striker from distance from kickboxing range, and she does have pretty good leg kicks. So, uh, in this factor, I'm gonna go with Bannon. I do like it going to distance though, because I don't think she gets finished, and I don't think right now she has that power and that finishing tenacity, knowing that she's only five fights in. I haven't seen anything to prove to me otherwise. So I do like the decision. I could see the over one and a half, two and a half being lucrative for you if you want to go that way. And with Shard Bannon being the underdog, you're already getting the plus 105 on her. So I'm going to lean towards that here. But I do agree. This could be a close fight uh, when it comes down to it. And I just think that the volume is going to edge in here. But we never know. Uh, Brazil right. could do less volume, uh, but she could do more damage. So that could be a, right. a factor in this as well. I'm just going to lean towards the underdog here. That's why it's always so hard to judge these newcomers because, like, there's very limited tape. They're unknown yeah. factors. And they're always usually paired with someone like Brazil who you're like, I mean, they're kind of on their way out anyway, but that they could be like, hey, this is my chance to stay in. And then all of a sudden we see a version of them that we've never seen before. Yeah. So, I mean, this one, this one's kind of up in the air, but I mean, we'll see. This this could be either the most exciting matchup or just exactly what you're expecting. Yeah. But let's move on. We got a men's lightweight matchup. I'm actually looking forward to this one. We got a yeah, lightweight be matchup badass. between Chris Duncan versus Yonar Asmus. You got Duncan, the minus 115. You got Asmus, he is the minus 105. Basically, another pick him here. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? 
Interesting. Well, I checked the uh, ESPN bookie odds. Uh, the ESPN odds makers actually has Ashmuz as the dog, which I kind of felt was a little disrespectful. Like, I've seen Duncan. He's uh, relatively new inside of the UFC, but he's got a pretty long professional career. He's got good power. He picks his shots. He's patient. Um, but he does have a tendency to overswing sometimes, which creates openings. But his power hand and his leg kicks create pressure and keep him moving forward on his opponents. So on the cards, that always looks good. Um, now, he's good at utilizing that clinch in his wrestling when he's being overwhelmed. So he can kind of close that range, uh, get really nasty with those knees and elbows, hunt for those takedowns, and just kind of ride the back and, and really have good control. Um, yeah. Ashmuz, this is, I'm pretty sure, his first fight in the UFC. Tons second. of power in his hands. Oh, second. Yeah, you're right. Second. Yes. I saw his first one. Um, he's very patient as well. He waits for his openings. Um, just like in his first fight, he really didn't do anything right up until he, the moment he finished the dude. He saw his opening, he capitalized, he committed to it, and he made it happen. Um, so I see Ashmuz kind of coming out, swinging early in the fight. The minute he sees that first opening, I think he's going to bite on it really hard. Um, and that's when he's his most dangerous, is when he's fresh. He's not injured. He's got all his energy. Um, and Duncan's draw has shown to be susceptible to the kind of power that Ashmuz has in his hands. Um, I think the last uh, fight that I watched, I can't remember who he was fighting. Um, but you could tell that every time he got his chin touched, he got wobbled. And that's Omar, not the kind Omar of chin Morales. That was it, Omar Morales. Yeah, he got wobbled like four or five times. That's that's not the kind of chin you got to have going up against a guy like Ashmuz which is why when I saw the ESPN odds at plus 115, I was like, okay, well, I mean, if they're going to be disrespectful like that, why not throw a little money at it? Like a schmooze, he could put this away really early. The yeah. danger is if he goes, you know, pedal to the metal and then it doesn't work, he maybe, you know, misses that opportunity, misreads it's not thinking about the counter to the counter. All of a sudden, Duncan's on his back. And the, the question and that's is, what well, how to, much energy did he drop? And that's what happened on the contender series to Duncan mm -hmm. was – Right. He was almost finished, and his opponent put everything into that, I think, first round, or, yeah, into that first onslaught, and then Duncan was able to recover and then nailed him for the knockout right. because what Duncan does is he'll take one to get a dish out a couple shots, and his defense is just, I'm just going to stand in front of you and throw at yeah. you. I would take as much damage as possible. So far, his chin has been able to, just handle up right now, but he's primarily going to strike with you. He has knockout power. He's just in your face. He doesn't let up go. But then, you know, Asmus has knockout power. He came into the last fight. He had the, a huge disadvantage with the reach and the height, and it didn't matter because he had accurate striking. He landed that one shot that mattered, and he got the knockout. So I do agree with you there. When they're early in the fight, when they're fresh, he's going to be able to have those uh, moments where he'll have the open shot because Duncan doesn't do a great job at, at uh, defense. He doesn't have great uh, striking defense, and I think that might do in Duncan because he's been stunned the last two fights, the contender series and his debut, and he's had to overcome it. But against a guy that has true power in his hands and is going to hit him accurately, he might get stunned to the point where he's not going to be able to recover from it. But I do worry about if he gets stunned and then Asmus puts everything into it and he doesn't finish him, just like you said. Right. Because then it comes to a point where then it gives Duncan a chance to recover and he will be the fresher guy the rest of the way where he's right. just going to land shots and 
either finish him or take him to the distance. So what I like here is I still think you're not asked Moose is going to win. I got him by mm-hmm. first round and knockout. Yeah. <laughs> but but if you're a little bit on the fence here, you can probably find a way to uh, to kind of like go both ways where you go with that, but then you go with Duncan by decision. Because you're gonna you could even it, do like bet on yeah. us moves and then like the over two and a half rounds, yeah, and kind of cover both your bases that way. Even let's say Ashmoose puts it all in, and then it because one of the things that is kind of an unknown at this level is does he have wrestling? So if Duncan yeah. wants to wrestle, can he wrestle back? If he can, well, now we've yeah. got a fight, and now it's gonna and that's go. what and that's what Duncan did against Omar Morales. Is later on in the fight, he used a little bit of the wrestling, he used a little bit of control where he postured up and he was throwing striking. He just wasn't able to get Morales out there, and he did go to decision in that fight. So I feel like you can, you're not going to make as much, but you'll be able to still make it in the plus. You'll still get plus, right. maybe if it's exactly. one or two units, it's still going to be better than if you just put it on one. So if you're Right. If you're unsure about going with Duncan by a first-round knockout, even just do by KO. You can do it by KO to cover right. all three rounds. And then if you, you still need to, go with uh, uh, Duncan by a decision. But I really like Asmus by knockout right. on this one. I really like it. I just the think monster. he has the – he has great striking, and Duncan has shitty defense. So it, it, it just right. makes sense to go with that, especially with him being stunned in two straight fights to open his career in century in the UFC. I, yeah. I haven't seen anything otherwise to show that he's not going to do a better job at his striking defense. Right, right. We're, we're going to move on to the next fight on the prelims. we got a women's Bannerweight matchup between Ketlin Vieira versus Penny Kianzan. This this is a very unusual spot for a fight like this, where these two fighters are yeah. both ranked. I b- st- still believe I still yeah they are both ranked. is ranked in the top fifteen. And yeah. just uh, last fight, Ketlin Vieira was basically on the main card. She was, I think, yeah. she was yeah she was the co-main event with uh, Raquel Pennington, but she yeah. comes in the minus two hundred. Kianzad comes in at the plus 160 mark. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, this matchup could actually be a fight not on its own. Right now, if we're looking yeah. at bantamweight, Vieira's four, Kianzad is seven. Like, that's not an, a prelims fight. Even though it's a London card, I still don't know why they were with that. But, I mean, stylistically, like, Vieira is a, largely she's a decision fighter. Ever since she entered the UFC, she doesn't have the big flashy knockouts, the crazy technical submissions she just kind of wears you out she's got decent enough power that you should be wary of her hands she's good on the cage where she can just kind of pin you there hunt for those submission or those takedowns even if she doesn't get them she makes you carry her weight a lot on the ground she knows at least you know enough to not get submitted but not necessarily enough to be like tapping people left and right um she's got that muay thai background so there's always kind of uh, like openings created because it's more of a kicking style than it is a like punching style, uh, closer like boxing, something like that. Of course, that BJJ Brazilian, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt always helps. Um, where you look at Kianzad, and she doesn't like to fight in striking range much. She likes to be real far away to where like you have to come to her to strike. And that way she can either strike with you if she wants to, back off if she's uncomfortable, or when she sees an opening, rush in, take the clinch, get it on the fence, and then try to hunt for your back. From the back, she's usually looking to tie you up, 
make you carry her weight, you know, put, pepper you with some punches, a couple of elbows in there. If she can get a takedown, she'll take it. Um, she does hunt for submissions when she's on the ground. She hunts for them on the cage too. So I can kind of see why they would think Kianzad would be the, the favorite or I'm sorry, the dog here uh, would be because she's not really comfortable in that striking range. And Vieta is. And if Kianzad rushes in to take that clinch, that's nothing that Vieta hasn't seen before. And she could easily turn the tables on her. And then now you've got Kianzad in against the cage in a position where historically she's not super great. Like if she's the one pressing the, the exchange and she can find your back, that's where she's best. If you can stall her out, she runs out of answers pretty quick. So I absolutely see why they went with Vieta as the favorite. I think she's probably the favorite here. Um, I think she's going to keep her in striking range and then only close the distance at opportune moments. I don't necessarily see a finish here, but I think she can take the decision pretty easily. Um, so I'd be betting over two and a half or the fight going the distance. And of course, Vieta by decision, if they've got some tasty odds for that. Yeah, the, if you looked at the past fights, uh, just like you said, a lot of Vieira's striking is the calf kick and those wide shots. Uh, and she uses those wide shots to bum rush you into the clinch. Uh, if she's not going to connect on you, she's at least going to clinch up with you. And usually she's the one with the uh, with the strength advantage. And then she uses that to take the fight down. You look at one fight that for some reason went the wrong way was the uh, Yana Santos fight where she took her down uh, three times and controlled on the mat. It's just that she wasn't very active when she was on top of her and Yana was able to just throw from below. And when you see Penny Canton, she's going to be the better striker. Her one weakness is the output. She's, she's going to put less volume in. It's more about being uh, counter striker landing shots, the more accurate shots when she can, but it's just uh, she doesn't throw enough. It, it, that's that's what's uh, keeping her from getting to the next echelon in the division is her uh, volume output. She doesn't have that power in her hands, and she always goes to the decision. But she's a very accurate striker. She has good uh, like hands, just like I said. She's just not active. And the way I see this going is I see Kevin Vieira landing more strikes with just the bum rushing, landing in the non-accurate strikes but still connecting, and then taking her down a couple of times. I see this going along the fence, her controlling there, getting inside that Muay Thai clinch, landing those knees uh, and elbows, just being active where it matters up close and then take the fight down to the mat. And I do agree with you. I see this going the distance uh, because I don't think she's going to finish Kianzad or I think Kianzad's going to do enough to stay active to keep the fight going. It's just that it's very easy to go with uh, the favorite here when Kianzad doesn't put enough effort to uh, make the, it close on the striking output. So the only chance that Kianzad has is, is if she can keep it from kickboxing range, land just enough strikes uh to outdo Vieira, defend the takedowns and then be just a little bit more active but i'm going with kevin Vieira by decision on this one i do like the over two and a half rounds mark here and i think if you even go to the point where you go with decision you might be able to get it close to even odds there uh within this matchup but there's there's not really much else that you can do with this one unless you really do think that Kianzad can pull this one out by decision. That's the only other option that you have in this fight. Right. Yeah. 
But let's move on to the next fight on the card. We got a men's middleweight matchup between, whoops, the wrong one between yeah, Mark Diakisi <laughs> versus Yorel uh, Alvarez. You got Diakisi, the plus 130. You got Alvarez, the minus 155. What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, this one's interesting because, like, honestly, this kind of feels like they're just setting this up for a slump buster for Alvarez more than anything. Like, Joel Alvarez, he's had a – well, he had a four-fight winning streak until he went up against my boy, Armand Sarukian. That was, you know, we got to give him some slack there because he wasn't going to beat Armand. But, you know, he was he was a good fighter, though, and he was definitely looking at uh, looking at, like, one of these guys who would be – Top 10 one day, just got to, you know, give him the right guys, the right maturation, and, and he'll be, you know, a big name in the division. So it feels like this is what they're trying to do is, is build his confidence up a little bit with one that they know he's probably going to win. Like he's a, a big, long fighter. He's very large for the division. He has an excellent submission game. Um, he has decent striking. There's still some room to grow and improve, but ultimately he uses that striking to kind of see if he can hurt you. Or if, you know, he feels overwhelmed, he's always got that grappling to fall back to. And that's really where he's most comfortable is hunting for those submissions and getting you to tap. Um, whereas the KC is majority of his wins in the UFC have come by decision. Uh, his, I think his win-ins inside the UFC have been five decisions and two knockouts. Um, but those knockouts were very early in his UFC run. Um, he has a you know, fairly decent top game in his wrestling uh, but he tends to settle instead of hunting for submissions. That's not something you can do for Joel Alvarez. Now, usually when you got wrestlers, I tend to favor the wrestler over the jiu-jitsu guy because of how those styles tend to mesh. Jiu-jitsu guys, one of the first things they ever learn is how to fight from their back in front guard, whereas wrestling, what they're always looking to do is pin, hold you down, move position, try to you know work in, until they win. So when you have those two philosophies clash, what ends up happening is the jiu-jitsu guy way too happy to stay on his back, way too happy to be inactive, whereas the wrestler, that's exactly what he wants. He's going to take heavy top position, and he's just going to smother you. And if you got a guy who's got more of like a catch wrestling or a Samo background, and he's hunting for those submissions on top of that, that just creates more opportunities for it. Um, but because of the way DeCasey does that, that kind of wrestling where he'll take the top position, and then he just kind of sits, and he doesn't do much. And he won't even really strike that much. He just kind of wants to weigh you down a little bit and just rack up uh, mat time instead of actually looking for a finish, that's only going to help Alvarez because he's going to be down there throwing up questions, creating problems, and looking to catch the Casey when he's not paying attention. Um, and you know, between the two of them, I mean, the Casey's not anything super tremendously special in the striking. He's fairly accurate. He's got good guard discipline. I mean, you know, but he's not like a one-shot knockout power kind of guy. And Alvarez does have the height and the length advantage, and I think that's going to go a long way here. So ultimately, I think um, you can look at probably Alvarez by submission, or if he's having an off night, maybe take the decision. Uh, but definitely, if you're looking at submission, I'd go under two and a half because Alvarez tends to start a little quick. Uh, but if you're looking at decision, obviously over. A big thing with this fight is going to be that height and reach advantage that Yoel Alvarez is going to have on Mark Diacasey. You've been pointed uh, in the last couple of fights. Diakisi has prioritized his wrestling over his striking. He's put more input into the takedowns and control on the mat, averaging two takedowns a fight in, in that span. And he's had success there, but it's going to be hard to get inside of Alvarez when you have 
uh, a six, I believe the difference is six three to five ten. I believe yeah, something crazy. like that, <laughs> and then a four or five inch reach advantage as well. And Avarez is a high level jujitsu artist, and he does have very good striking. So he's just going to hit him from a distance, and use that jujitsu to keep him at bay, trying uh, try and defend the takedowns. And you might get situations where you're going to have openings for a guillotine. Oh, with the take uh, the town attempts of Dia Casey. So I could see either uh, Alvarez knocking him out because he does have uh, power on his hands, or I could see him choking him out with a guillotine later on in the fight when Dia Casey has uh, utilized a lot of his energy with the three, four, or five takedowns in the first couple of rounds because that's what he's going to attack with from a heavy standpoint is the wrestling. So it's going to kill some of his cardio he does have decent cardio but he slows down as time comes and the more you shoot because you don't get the takedown the more energy you got to expel so i think uh i definitely think that joel alvarez is going to win this one mid to late in the fight i could see knockout i could see submission so with me playing that inside the distance uh bet is very good to cover both sides of things because he can attack Daikisi from either side. I do like the under two and a half as well because it covers a lot. It just depends on what the line's going to be. Usually the lines come out later tonight and then tomorrow with all the craziness. And then with him being minus 155, the money line is still good enough for me. It's still worthy of playing that if you because I do think that there's a big advantage with Avarez there, so I'm definitely going to play the Avarez money line with minus 155. It just depends on what the lines are with everything else. But right now, I'm going to lean towards inside the distance just to cover both of my outlets because I could put submission, but then he could go out there and knock out Daya KC. So I'm just covering both my bases there. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yep. Let's move on to the next fight that we have. Now it's a middleweight matchup between Brian Barbarina versus Mahmoud Morodov. We got Barbarina is the plus 230 heavy underdog. You got Morodov is the minus 280 favorite. And one note to put down before I head it over to you. Brian Barbarina is making the move up from welterweight to middleweight yes. for this fight. So this is his debut in the middleweight division. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight? Yeah, no, that was that was something that kind of threw me for a loop on this fight as well, that this is his first fight, it looks like, inside the UFC fighting at middleweight. Um, so he's he's going, I think, heavier, which tends to usually favor a fighter in different ways than cutting down. When you cut down, what tends to happen is a fighter has a size and a strength advantage, um, whereas when you uh, go up and you add more weight, that tends to be closer to your natural weight. So you're not necessarily bigger or stronger, but you do tend to have more energy, which at this stage in the game in Barbarina's career, considering how much battle damage he has, considering you know how long the career's had and how much of a toll that's taken, I think more energy is, is kind of what he needs at this point, um, especially if he's going up against a guy like Muradov. Um, Barbarina, he just loves to stand there and trade. He trades leather for leather. He doesn't even care. It's, he's a fun guy to watch. But there's a reason he's not, you know, competitive for a belt right now. He's definitely susceptible to high-level grapplers. He's coming off of two submission losses against, you know, guys who are pretty good at submissions. He's a fighter uh, coming up. Oh, I already said that. 
Um, so Muradov, he likes to stand and trade, but I feel like, you know, he has actually combat Sambo background. I, I looked him up, um, but he doesn't use it much. And I feel like he'll need to use it against Barbarina, especially if Barbarina is coming into a weight class that's closer to his natural weight. He has the energy to kind of go the distance and do more output than he's used to doing. Um, so Muradov, I feel like he has a lot of knockouts in his record. That's true. Um, and he was able to hold his own against a grappling specialist uh, like uh, Chiao Braulio. Uh, and he, he did all right, but I'm pretty sure he lost that fight. Um, so his, his grappling abilities are there. The question are is, is he going to use it? So really, we have to see how that first round goes to get an idea of what is Muradov's game plan in this. Is he going to go to war with uh, Barbarina or is he going to take the smarter route and instead try to wear him out, maybe use the striking at first a little bit, take those reads, get a feel for his range, get an idea of, okay, where are the openings? And then second round, come out real heavy on the wrestling, uh, make sure he's slipping under those big crosses, big hooks take the legs, put him on the cage, and then just work on him for the next round and a half. Um, I mean, we'll see what his game plan is, but if he's coming out and thinking like, oh, I'll just stand and trade with Barbarina, I thought Barbarina wasn't going to make it through the uh, Robbie Lawler fight, but there he was right at the end. He made it all the way through. Yep. So I feel like if he can take that kind of punishment, I don't know if Muradov, you know, has the same kind of dog he has to where if he makes it a striking battle, that only helps Barbarina. He might not be able to necessarily knock out Muradov, but I think he could take him to decision and snatch that victory away from him if he doesn't come with the right game plan. Um, but ultimately, the way I'm, I would see this, um, I would definitely want to play the live odds after that first round. Um, but since Barbarina has the advantage, if you see that like in the first round, it's very clear that Muradov is not looking to grapple at all. Go ahead and place some money on that 230 because that second round is probably not going to cause a big shift in the odds. So, I mean, if you want to be real safe, you could probably say this fight's going to go the distance because even if Muradov does come with the wrestling game, he doesn't have a huge amount of like, you know, take him down, pound him out, TKO finishes. It's usually more on his feet anyway. And Barbarina usually starts out where he's uh, high, high level too. So mm -hmm. even if you're on Muradov, you can go with live after the first round and maybe you get lucky Barbarina has a really good first round and then the odds go down from minus 280 to more so like minus 150 or so, or even close to even depending on how Barbarina does uh, with, with his volume. And you could get a better odds for rounds two and three because Barbarina – does slow down. He just he keeps moving, but he does slow down. And then, if you look at the last two three fights, he struggled primarily with grapplers, guys right. who can uh, take him down and then uh, finish him on the mat, whether it's uh, ground and pound or submission. Just look at Jason Witt. He had very big uh, advantage. He's a guy that isn't in the UFC right now, but he had easy success taking him. Barbarina down two, three, four times, even though he got damaged up on the feet. And but he controlled him there. He did damage on the mat. Barbarina just has issues with that. He has issues with getting up. He has issues with defending their takedown. And he's gonna look to get this into like a striking battle because that's where he's gonna have the better chances. He ha he has knockout power. He 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 wants to get into a bar fight. And Mordon does have that power in his hands. But he would be smart to use the takedowns to wear Barbarina out, then to finish him with the hands. Because then he's going to get a, a more slowed down version of Barbarina where he's going to be able to connect on shots 
the way he's going to have more outlets to hit him from, more angles, because Mordov does have that background. He just doesn't use it as much. He's primarily using his striking. And we've seen it in the past where he's had issues with his game planning. You saw in the fight, I believe he was he, he fought uh, uh, what's his name, and he got taken down and submitted because he went too heavy with the striking yeah. in that battle, and and he needs to prioritize uh, the the takedowns in this one, even to set up his striking. If oh, you like those Mirshard, yeah, Mirshard, and about. and then he he had that fight where he was laying in shots. He was coming close to finish him, but then he put himself in a bad position. And then the last fight against Kyle Barrio, uh, he was just levels above him with the jiu-jitsu. Oh, yeah. Used that, and even his striking w- was a little bit better. And I think he's going to come in a better fighter here because the last time he fought was eight months ago. Before that was a year before that. So I think he's going to use that. And knowing that he's playing against primarily just a striker, I think you might see him doing a lot of clinch game, clinching game along the fence to kind of make uh, Barbarina work, waste a lot of his energy, and then you might see him go into that striking range. But I think he's going to be needing to use that grapple and the setup of that striking of his to where he can take advantage of Barbarina. I like the over one and a half in this one uh, yeah. for that play. I think they're going to get better odds there because a lot of people think it's going to be a fight where it gets finished early on, whether it's Barbarina with the shock and uh, knockout or Mordov because he's the heavy favorite. So I'm going to say go live bet after the first round. Hopefully you can get a good line on Mordov to lower it down or go over one and a half because it's going to cover you no matter what, especially with the fact that he doesn't have the best game with uh, putting together a good uh, fight game and then Barbarina's always looking to go for the knockout and I don't think he's going to get it against Mordov. So it's, it could be just one of those born fights where they're just standing up and train shots and missing. And then they just clinch up with each other uh, 10, 11 times in this one. So I'm leaning towards Mordov on this one uh, by, uh, by knockout the second or third round, but who knows uh, with Barbarina right. fight, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, he, he is a bit of a wild card. I mean, uh, since you're bringing up, like, uh, we were talking about how Muradov has, like, a game plan issue, and there's a lot of fighters who – Kobe Covington is an excellent example. Kobe Covington's best weapon in his career has always been his high-output striking. He changes gyms. He leaves top team. He goes to this MMA Masters, and what's the one thing they take away from him? His most effective weapon, and he keeps doing it. And it's like – you have to grind out these really boring decisions where all you're doing is like just riding the dude and just waiting for the clock to run out. But that's not necessarily his fault. That's the coaching because they're like, no, we didn't teach you that. You have to use our stuff. So I'm looking at Muradov's associations here on Tapology. Looks like his primary gym is a monster gym. No idea. It's in the Czech Republic somewhere. But I'm looking at the records of all these guys who are affiliated with the same gym. We're seeing a lot of like uh, mostly decision, mostly TKOs. Looks like it's not a gym of a huge amount of grapplers. Uh, there are some guys with some submissions, but they are submission wins sprinkled throughout a lot of TKOs and a lot of decisions. But a lot of the losses, the vast majority of these losses are submission losses, which means this gym just doesn't have a very good staff when it comes to wrestling and jiu-jitsu, 
which tells you a lot about what his game plan is probably going to be going yeah. in because when he goes to the corner in between rounds, he's not going to be getting advice like, hey, you need to start busting out that combat Sambo. He's going to be getting advice like, hey, your jab's not quick enough. Hey, you need to be throwing more crosses. I want to see combinations. They're not going to be giving him the right information that he needs when when going up against a guy like Barbarina where you think, you know, after all that damage, oh, he'll go down in two. But then he's right there at the third putting you on the mat and kicking your teeth in. So, like, you can't you can't slump on this guy. Yeah, that's why I think the, the clinch game is going to be a factor in this one for Morada because he might not have the greatest grappling uh, game plan-wise, but he'll be able to use that weight advantage uh, yeah. since he's used to middleweight and Barberini is doing the, uh, the move up to, to yeah. control him along the fence and then strike him from there. So I think that yeah. might be the play here. It's at him trying to get the takedowns. It might be the, right. the controlling along the fence, striking there, and wearing out Barbarina from that point. And the question will be, if since Barbarina is going to have more energy because it's not yeah. going to be as intense of a weight cut, the question will be, is Muradov going to commit enough to hold him on that cage, or yeah. is he going to just pull out and go, ah, I want to strike with you anyway, and then immediately back up when it's like, no, 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 you had the right idea. <laughs> go yeah. back to what's working, you know? Let's move on to the next fight, though. We got a heavyweight battle on the prelims between Mick Parkin versus Jamal Poegs. We got Parkin, the plus 120 underdog. We got Jamal, who is the minus 145 favorite. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? All right, this one I'm going to go a little against the grain on it. And hear me out. I got I got a reasoning why. So... Both of these guys, I'm pretty sure they're both debuting from the Dana White Contender Series. They both had pretty good fights. Um, you Jamal, Parkin, uh, Jamal's, this will be Jamal's second fight, but yeah, oh, he, he's fight. from the gotcha. Contender Series. He beat Josh Parisian uh, yeah. in his first fight. Yeah. I mean, so you've got kind of similar styles, but there's a key difference here. Uh, Parkin actually has pretty decent wrestling for a heavyweight. Given his size and his physique, you wouldn't necessarily expect it, but he's kind of like the like an Alexander Romanov. Like he's kind of a big boy, but then if he needs to mix it up with some wrestling and some takedowns, he'll do it. And you're like, wow, I didn't even know he had that kind of athleticism in him. He's very durable. Um, he does get kind of get touched up. He does get stunned, but he powers through. And you know, he'll he'll rush you to the cage and just stay on you no matter what. And like in his contender series, that that fight. The minute he got the, the the back control, he just wouldn't let it go until finally he was able to just throw him down on the mat, work to the back, and just create a submission out of nowhere. Because, I mean, in the striking battle, he was clearly losing. I think it was um, – uh, who was the fighter's name? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Whoever he was fighting was significantly better striker. At a certain point, his opponent actually put his hands down, like – down below his knees it was like come on keep swinging i'll just keep dodging and you can't touch me um so when you look neves. at pogues huh eduardo neves that was it neves that's yep. the that was the one yeah so with pogues uh in the fights i see he's very very clean he's clearly got a boxing background he does have a pretty heavy uh head kick especially from the rear leg um that's always in his back pocket whenever he needs to bust it out but particularly on the on the contender series fight, the problem was like he wasn't using it. He gets too comfortable once he sets into a groove, uh, and that groove tends to be set up behind the jab and just do single shots like jab, wait, then you cross, or maybe like jab, jab. Here's an opening cross. Um, his coaches were getting on him like, "Hey, 
We need three, four punch combinations. We need to see that big heavy leg kick. You're not capitalizing enough. You're not active enough. Now, against a guy like Parkin, who kind of tends to be more of the brawler, less technical, I think that is super, super helpful for Pogues because he can more easily pick that style apart because that's that's exactly what he wants. He wants guys who are going to swing wide, who are not going to have good guard discipline so he can find those openings and put it to him. Problem is, once he gets in that groove, he's not capitalizing for power punching. He's just touching. So he might have the volume, but against a guy like Parkin, who as soon as he figures out, hey, this isn't working, he's going to change tactics and he's going to go to that wrestling I don't think Jamal Pogues is going to be able to stop him because there's not going to be enough respect for the hands, right? Like usually that cross, that rear hook, that's what keeps the wrestler off of you. But if you're not doing it, then they're just going to wait until they see an opening, go, okay, I'm done with this, slip under your cross, charge you, grab the legs, put you on the cage, and just do what Parkin did in his in his contender series fight, hunt for the back until something happens, right? So um, even though Pogues, I feel, is definitely the more technical striker, he doesn't seem as comfortable in those wrestling exchanges. So I think once Parkin gets tired of trying to trade and he initiates those wrestling exchanges, I think Pogues is going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, I could see Pogue, uh, Parkin potentially finishing him via like submission like he did in the Contender Series, but he could just as easily pound him out with elbows and get a TKO. Uh, I'm thinking it's probably going to take a minute just because Jamal Pogues doesn't line up those big power shots. So I feel like Parkin might not see it as big of a threat until that first round goes through and he realizes, shit, I just burned one of my three opportunities to win this thing. I got to mix it up a little bit. I feel like that second round, he's going to come out really heavy and there's potential for a finish there. Yeah, I feel like uh, Parkin is very similar to Josh Persian and the style uh, that they do. And from seeing Jamal and what he did with Josh Persian, he took him down five times you use the wrestling area because he does have that wrestling background, but he's more so lean towards that strike and it's more power. It's not very accurate, but if he can use that wrestling here, I I do think early on, I do think he could be very effective against Parkin. I think Parkin's going to have the better striking, uh, but like we've seen, uh, like we've had a little taste of uh, Pogues and he did like, we thought he was going to be like a knockout artist. Then he comes in here and he yeah. takes down Prezian five times. I'm just going to lean towards that here. I'm going to play the safe route here because I do think that he'll have success with the wrestling. A lot of people think there's going to be a finish here. I could see this going to a decision where Jamal takes him down three, four times because Parkins hasn't showcased his takedown defense that much. He does have, like you said, he does have grappling experience as well too. He doesn't use it as much early in fights, and that's why I think I'm leaning towards Pogue here. I do like the the, the thought there uh, to go with Parkin because the odds plus 120 in a to me like a 60 40 fight where I get the edge to Pogues, and in one of those fights, I would do that myself if I feel there's an edge there. If Parkin can use uh, the the wrestling that he has and use it from the beginning, I could see the path to victory there, especially by decision. I just know that with him coming up, making his debut, and this being close to 50-50, I'm going to go with the veteran here because he does have grappling experience as well. And I do believe he's coming in here uh, with a, a little bit of a, a reach disadvantage. So I, I think he's going to use that and know that he has to grapple instead of 
trying to stand up and force something. So I'm going to go with the Jamal Pogues here. If I had to pick him, I do like the money line there. So I might do that, but I really like the over one and a half here. I think they're going to put an emphasis on that in this fight. So I'm definitely going to pinpoint that here. Other than that, I'm staying away from this, from everything else. I like the money line and I like the over one and a half here. I don't worry like anything else because just like you said, when it comes to like a low level fight like this, unless the guy has showcased that he has knockout power, anything 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 goes in this fight. So Jamal yeah. Pogues, money line over one and a half for me. Yeah. Leading towards the next one, I believe this is the last fight on the prelims, which I believe yes, no, no. Second yeah, to last fight. More, on the right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. Second to last fight on the prelims. We got a a men's welterweight matchup between Danny Roberts going up against Johnny Parsons, making his debut finally. Uh, we got <laughs> Roberts minus 105. We got Parsons minus 115. Another basic pick and fight on this card. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, I think we got two really durable fighters who like to stand and trade. Kind of makes sense why it's pick em odds. Whenever you got two guys like that um, who just want to kind of stand and trade leather, you know, any given night, whoever gets the luckier shot, whoever adds up more, you know, uh, volume, just because maybe they had, you know, an extra power bar before they went out there, you know, like, like these two guys have very similar styles. I think uh, when you look at Roberts, he's a good striker. He's got decent movement. He keeps his head moving. So he's got that evasion. He has good takedown and submission defense. So, you know, he's not easily finished by grapplers. They do give him a lot of problems because he does want to try to stay in that striking range more. And then when you press him and, and put him in those situations where he doesn't like it as much, you know, he, he's not really the guy who's going to be the go-getter and not be like, okay, you want to grapple? I'm going to hunt for submissions too. He's really more looking more to like get away from you, get to his feet and turn it back into a striking match. Um, he has three decision wins, three KOs, one submission. I'm pretty sure that submission was a little earlier on. Um, now his guard discipline is spotty here. It does create and leave openings as he's striking. Um, it's not as clean. It's it's more in the vein of Muay Thai than it is technical boxing. Whereas Parsons, um, from what I've seen, he has a good counter-striking game, especially early in the fight when he's making his reads and he's trying to get a feel for what the other guy is going to do. Um, he has good power in his high kicks, especially towards the head. Um, he takes his reads in that first round, which does kind of slow him down, but... Um, he can find himself in a lot of trouble against high-pressure offensive strikers who overwhelm his counter game. So it's the idea of if you're always reactive and somebody is overly active, it kind of overloads your brain because you're constantly thinking like, okay, when he does this, I'm going to do this. And if he does this, I'm going to do this. But then if there's like five things coming at you all at one time, your brain can't process those fast enough and go, oh, wait, 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 which one do I counter? Which one do I counter, right? Um, so it depends on who shows up. Uh, in turn for Roberts, right? If he's showing up full of energy, because usually at the beginning of these fights, he does start a little fast. Um, if he converts that energy into high output, that's going to be a huge advantage against a guy like Parsons. Um, even though who, he does have a lot of wins by KO, I think Roberts could wear him out. And Parsons in round one, very different fighter from Parsons in round three. So it really depends on, you know, what 
Roberts is going to do when he's fresh because I feel like we already know what Parsons is going to do in the first couple of rounds. He's going to start slow. He's going to read the situation. He's going to get uh, an idea of that gauging that distance, and he's going to be trying to, trying to set up counters in the second and third round. If that doesn't work out, then he's just going to try to keep it standing, add up the points, and, and take the decision. Roberts is a little bit more volatile. Sometimes he does want to just rush in and go for that knockout. Um, and then sometimes when he is getting pieced up a little bit, he wants to kind of slow the pace down and then hopefully grind out a close decision. So I think definitely you're playing the over two and a half rounds. That's a no brainer. Um, but play the odds and allow the odds to swing a little bit on the live rounds, just because like once you see Roberts, you kind of have an idea how the rest of the night is going to go in that yeah. first round. Right. So I think ultimately, um, you can probably see it, I think, either way. Maybe Parsons gets a lucky shot, finishes him maybe in the second, third round, or Roberts could cause enough damage, slow him down, get a takedown, and then pound him out with uh, like a TKO-style victory. Again, somewhere in the second or third. This one really is kind of a toss-up just because yeah. these guys are similar, but they're just a, like a half step out of sync. Danny Roberts would be so much better if he had higher output with his boxing because yeah. he has crisp hands, he has good striking. It's just that his output's not the same. It's always good in the first round, and then he slows down because it, it must be a cardio thing with him where yeah. he starts to slow down. He's lost some questionable fights against guys like Francisco Trinado and whatnot in fights yeah. that it came down to the wire and then he just lost it because of the volume late in fights. And that's why I like Johnny Parsons. Cause this is a guy that trains with Sean Strickland. He's all about the cardio. He works in a great environment. He's just a dog in the, in, in the cage. He's not great at one thing. He has good uh, striking. He has good grappling, but he, he can knock out certain guys in fights and he's going to last all uh, 15 minutes. So this is a fight where I like the fact that he's going to uh, go to distance. He's going to take the shots early. I think this is a fight where you, you definitely want to hit the uh, live odds after round one. You're going to have Danny Roberts, who's likely going to take round one. As long as he doesn't finish uh, Johnny Parsons there, there's that chance there. And then you're going to get that uh, Johnny Parsons minus 115, it's going to turn into plus uh, like odds yeah, after that. Sure. And then that's where you can capitalize on him taking over rounds two and three because I do see this going to a decision. So I might do a play. Like if I don't do the money line at minus 115, I'm definitely going to wait to round two and smash the odds right after round one ends. Boom, go to Johnny Parsons. Hopefully it'll be plus money and he'll be down on the scorecards and take advantage of that because I do think that he's going to take rounds two and three because he's going to make it more of a grueling style. It's going to clinch up along the cage, do a lot of that dirty striking from close up, and he's going to wear on Danny Roberts a little bit more. That's what he trains with with guys there like Chris Curtis, like Sean Strickland. He trains that way. He's one of the primary trainers for those two guys because he can last, he has great cardio, and he's good within the clinch. So I do think that this is going to go to decision. I think he edges out maybe a split decision against Danny Roberts with rounds two and three. And you're going to get good odds there if you live bet it after round one. So I'm going Johnny Parsons uh, to win this one. I, I'm going to wait until round one ends to bet it. 
and I might look at the decision mark too. I might just go Johnny Parsons' decision to start yeah. out with, and then look at the live odds to see if I can get a good uh, money lines thing in case I need to hit it. But I definitely think this goes to decision. So if you're going, if you want to be safe, go with over two and a half rounds because you're going to sure. get good odds there no matter what. But I do think that Danny Roberts' gas tank and then his low out, output after round one is going to play a big factor in this one. Yeah, for sure. Let's move on to the, the prelim main event now. We got a men's uh, matchup between Davy Grant versus Daniel Marcos in the Bannerweight division. Davy Grant comes in the plus 100 underdog, and then Marcos comes in the minus 120 favorite. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Man, I do like Davy Grant. Uh, I'm a Davy Grant fan. I remember back in the day when I was in college and Davy Grant was on The Ultimate Fighter, and he was he was really fun to watch. But I don't think he has this one, unfortunately. He's that classic, durable U, uh, UFC vet. He's got good striking. He, he can go to the ground, but the way he fights, he, he doesn't do it until he's like almost about to finish you. Like he'll keep you on the feet. He'll strike with you or hurt you real bad. And then when it looks like you're wobbled, but you just won't go down, he'll stick you on the cage, pick those legs out from under you, and then try to you know finish you off with like a TKO style victory if he can't get the job done with just a good old classic KO on the feet. Um, the problem is, is the battle damage. He has been fighting for a long time and he has been in some absolute wars. There is a lot of scar tissue buildup all over his face. You know, he can't quite fight the way he did back in his, you know, uh, um, ultimate fighter days. The years have added up on this guy and he's, he is still tough as nails, but he's up against Marcos and Marcos is a beast. He's the undefeated newcomer. He's got great movement, great evasion in the feet. Uh, he's got excellent takedown defense. He's not easily wobbled. He's he's pretty durable himself, um, but he he's pretty well rounded. He's just he's good everywhere. He's got good striking. Uh, he can hold his own on the ground if he really needs to, but he doesn't have to go if he doesn't want to because of his takedown defense. Now I don't think Grant is going to be hunting for takedowns anytime soon on this guy. I think he's content to make this a war, but I think that would be a mistake on his part. Uh, but, you know, the old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So I think that's only going to play into Marcos's hands. I think the money line is is dead on on this one. I think Marcos has got a huge advantage here. Um, but I think it's going to be a fun fight to watch. Ultimately, I think if, if Grant is overwhelmed, he's going to try to take this fight to the cage, get real nasty in the clinch. Um, but if anything, that's that's not anything Marcos hasn't seen before. I think that's a situation he can easily turn to his advantage flip him around on the cage with his wrestling ability. If he wants to elbow, great, elbows and knees. If he doesn't, create space. Put him back in that striking range where you're the faster, younger, fresher fighter. If you want to take it to the ground, he could take it to the ground if he wants to. I don't think he will, but ultimately yeah. I think Marcos has a huge advantage here. Um, but because Davy Grant is so damn durable, I, I can't necessarily say he's going to knock him out because Davy Grant, I think it was the Song Yadong fight, Everybody was saying he was going to get finished, and Song Yudong is a monster. He is a finisher. Mm -hmm. Couldn't finish Davy Grant. So I think easily put the money on over two and a half rounds for sure. I see Marcos probably pulling out a, a decision victory. Uh, and again, Davy Grant's kind of a wild card, so it, it might be a close fight here. But I think if you're going to play over the two and a half, you're kind of covering yourself no matter what happens. You're going to be safe there. I think this is going to be the fight that kind of, Ends the the rep with the Davy Grant. 
because he's taken a lot of damage in his career, like he out, output, but he it takes a lot of striking damage and bites. Just like you said, scar tissue. He's been a lot of great wars over his time. He is three and two in his last five fights, but you can you can kind of say that that Raphael Asensio fight. He kind of had I help mean, with it's that. It's uh, Raphael Asensio. Yeah. <laughs> like, come kinda, on. Well, Asensio was outstriking him, and then you had that. Yeah case at the end with the foul that he instead of putting them back in the position he just stood him up mm-hmm. and that's where a sunset lost it and got uh mm-hmm. the finish by grant but other than that then on the other side you got dino marcos finished his opponent in his debut simon Oliveira by knees to the body and he's the mm-hmm. more accurate striker he has power in his hands he's the fresher fighter I'm going to go all out and say I got Dana Marcos by first round knockout on this one. I think he gets it done because he's going to be very pinpoint with his striking. And when he gets inside, he's going to attack from with those knees and with those elbows. He's going to be able to do a lot of damage. And with him not having to be been in those wars, he's not going to have those scar tissue. He's not going to bleed like right. David Grant does. And David Grant has suspect defense. He does well with clinching at times to avoid shots, but against a guy that's going to be very accurate, he's not going to overdo it. He's going to take his time and be precise with when he's thrown. I think he's going to feast on uh, Davy Grant in this one. So I got Dana Marcos. I love that minus 120 line because I thought it was going to be a little bit more because Dana Marcus is a guy that uh, the UFC is very high on. And then I'm going to go with the uh, with the KO, TKO, and DQ uh prop bet when it comes out because then that's going to be plus mark as well if you want to play it safe then you go inside the distance because it co- covers uh everything with, or you can cover just under one and a half rounds because i do think that there's going to be an early finish in this fight and i'm leaning towards daniel marcus in this one and when i do my bet slip he's going to be on there easily as one of my number one uh bets for this week oh yeah Let's move on to the main card here. We got six fights left. If you're just tuning in for the first time, smash the like button down below. Hit the uh, the subscribe button, and then please hit, leave us a comment in the comment section. Let me know what your picks and predictions for UFC Linden is gonna be, and let me know what bets that you're looking to make here and what you think of ours. Uh, we appreciate the comments. We appreciate the feedback. And now we're going to continue on with the main card. We got a men's uh, battle uh, right there between Jai Herbert going up against. Uh, no, I mean, we got, yeah, Jai Herbert going up against Ferris Zim in the lightweight division. Herbert's the minus 115, and Zim is the minus 105. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, these, these two guys are kind of an interesting matchup. You got Jai Herbert, he's kind of that long, rangy fighter. He does have some pretty decent power in his hands. He almost finished Ilya Tapora early in their fight. That was pretty impressive. You know, not a lot of people can do that to a guy like Ilya Tapora, who now is is looking at challenging and, and being Volkanovsky's first real challenge in a while, honestly. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he does struggle with, um, you know, grapplers especially. He, he does have sort of his issues. Right now, I think inside of the UFC, he's two and three. So this level of competition, even though he has good assets, might be a little bit more than he can handle at the moment. I think there's still some room for improvement. I think he can grow and really be a great fighter at this level, but just not right now. 
Um, and like I said, not the strongest ground game. Uh, and despite his size, his takedown defense still needs work. Like a guy like Ilya Tapora, I was like, what, 5'7? And uh, Jai Herbert, I'm pretty sure is like 6'1, 6'2. Ilya Tapora was able to basically ride out that near knockout just with wrestling, which against a guy as big as Jai Herbert shouldn't really be a problem. But that just goes to show you how susceptible he is to the grappling. And that gets us to Ziam, who, even though he's fairly new to the UFC, um, he hasn't really gotten too deep into the talent pool of the lightweight division yet. If you look at his matchups, the real big name he's fought was Terrence McKinney, who did finish him in the first round. Um, but he has kind of a, a promising start here where, you know, he's, he's taking the guys who don't really have big names. They're struggling just as much. Um, but the big asset he has here is his grappling. Uh, he, he's a little more well-rounded, I would say, than Jai Herbert. He is a good striker. He's very technical. He's got a great jab. Um, he can set up those power shots and he has good guard discipline, which means he doesn't leave a huge amount of openings. Um, and then when he needs to, he uses that wrestling and takedown ability to kind of turn the tables when he's struggling in the, in the striking department. That's not something Jai Herbert can do back to him. And if it does happen, then Jai Herbert is left with a problem he can't necessarily solve. So I think the, the betting odds have got it kind of kind of wonky here where they have it as a pick em, where I think Zium is is kind of the favorite here, to be honest. What I would do on this one, definitely play the live odds. Um, may, maybe you you'll get lucky and, and you, you know, have Jai Herbert have a strong first round, you know, because he sometimes does. That's mm. exactly what happened with Ilya Tapora, almost finished the dude. And because he was up against Ilya Tapora, the odds didn't move. But if had, that had been anybody else, the he would have had plus money on the opponent or they would have had plus money Oh, no, I'm sorry. I said it right. They would have had plus money on Jai's opponent. That is a possibility here. So you could play the live odds. Um, I would play uh, over under 25. Eh, let's play inside the distance is probably safer just because it's hard to say when Zium is going to really start get going. Sometimes he's slow to start. Sometimes he's not. It just depends on who his matchup is. And in that first round, what he gets from his reads. I feel like he's, he's very cerebral in that way. Uh, but I think he's definitely got the potential for the knockout. It would be in about second, third round probably. Uh, but for if, if you want just the easiest one by decision, just because he can out-wrestle Jai Herbert, and that would be his safest option is just yeah. put him on the ground where he has no answers. Yeah, and then we got a couple of days into the fight uh, goes too. So if you wait a little bit, that minus 105 might go into the plus. Because right. you've got Jai Herbert coming into here. He's going to be the guy that the fans are going to uh, lean towards the favorite. So they're going to put their money on him. Yeah. So even if you wait uh, like a day or two and wait until Friday well, night, you I might get better the odds. ESPN odds actually had Herbert as the dog originally. So yeah. it looks like the odds shifted down for Herbert to make it a pick em. So it seems like initially a lot of odds people were going with ZM as the favorite. So it, it just depends on who yeah. your bookie is. Yeah. I guess. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's going to lean. Uh, keep going that way to make Fair seem uh, the underdog, and hopefully we right. get that because then you'll be better in line to get those better odds there. Uh, in this fight, you got Jai Herbert. He's definitely going to be the better striker with the boxing background. If you look back at the past, the Renato Mocano fight, Mocano's been a guy who wants to stand up and trade with you, and even he knew how the the takedown defense was, and he went to the grappling in that fight, and that's how he won the fight was his grappling, taking down Herbert. 
controlling him on the mat, doing work there with the striking there, and just using that rinse and recycle. And it's worked with guys. Ludwig Klein, they went to a draw, but the, the times that Ludwig Klein did best was when he struck them a distance or when he grappled along the fence and was able to take Jai Herbert down. It's you got that clear cut path and Bear Seaman, he's a tall guy with a nice reach, and he does good from a distance with the leg kicks and that jam, but he's going to want to use that grappling side of things. He did well against Jamie Malarkey. He took him down several times. Malarkey took him down several times as well, but he was able to get that uh, uh, that victory, that decision victory over uh, Malarkey because of the control that he did to Malarkey. He made it seem like he was doing more damage because of that grappling thing. It's more of a jujitsu side, but with that long frame, he's able to use that body lock to leg trip very successfully. So I see him, as long as he can get close uh, when he needs to to Jai Herbert, he should be able to take him down several times, control him, knowing that Herbert's going to kind of extend himself at times with those overhand shots uh, when he's not trying to utilize the jab primarily. And he, he's going to have the openings to take him down and control him and do damage on the mat. I primarily, I still fear that Barrasim is going to get hit and get knocked out in this one because he's been prone to it. But then I also see that side of things where Jai Herbert could make the mistakes that he always makes and gets taken down and lose fights. This is Jai Herbert's fight to win uh, here. And, and, well, I should say this is his fight to lose, I should say. Because he should be the favorite in this one to Verasimen, but he always finds a way to lose the fights that he should win. So in that fact, I'm going to go with Verasimen here. I like the money line odds there. I think it's very favorable, especially if you wait a day and let that get to the plus. Because you know people are going to jump on the Herbert side, uh, knowing that he's the more established guy. He has the better yeah. striking and the only... The only reason that it's more 50-50 is because of that grapple and deficiency that he has with his defense. And that just so happens to be Zeman's specialty is his grappling. So I'm going to play that. I might wait and play live as well because you might get a great odds there. And I definitely like the over here in this one. And if you want to get really crazy, I might wait and see what the, the sub bet uh, prop bet is. Because late in this fight, I could see a situation where Fair Seaman could use that long range to get a rear naked choke on Jai Herbert if he could control him on the mat, wear him out, and get that one. And I do think that that would be a great one to, even if you put just 0.5 units on, a small one, just a, just a chance bet there. You put something very small and you gain a lot in, in return because the, the odds on that one are probably going to be very high knowing uh, the two guys fighting. So. I'm leaning towards Varys Zeman in this one. For sure, for sure. Let's move on to the next fight on the main card. We got a men's featherweight matchup between Leroy <laughs> Murphy versus Josh Kulabal. We got Murphy, the minus 160. We got Kulabal, the plus 130. What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, this one's going to be a fun fight, I think. I think no matter what happens, I think we're all going to enjoy seeing how this one goes down. Uh, you got Lerone Murphy, undefeated fighter, mostly uh, tends to be winning by knockout. Uh, he's got also, I think, I think fewer decisions or maybe a couple more. I can't remember. The dude's got power in his hands no matter what. He's got good evasion. He's excellent at managing distance. Um, he's out when he needs to be out, and he'll get right in your shit, right when you don't want him to be. 
Um, he can definitely hold his own in a scramble if he needs to. Um, although I don't, I'm not sure that that's necessarily going to come up in this fight. Uh, he is susceptible to takedown, though. And, you know, if he is getting a lot of heavy pressure on the ground, uh, if you can get him on bottom, he kind of does run out of answers in those situations. Uh, Kulabau, he's kind of a rangy striker. He's got good in and out movement. Uh, he's very kind of karate style, if you want to think of it that way. More of a longer stance, that way he can kind of get in real quick and then run away. Um, and he's doing more of the point style. So considering his style, I would expect to see more volume from him, but I, I just don't necessarily see that all the time. Sometimes he's more active, and then sometimes he's, I think, overthinking things, and he's too timid. Even though he's got the speed, he's got the maneuverability, he doesn't necessarily capitalize it all the time. Uh, Laura Murphy, though, does capitalize on the assets he has, and he that's what makes him such a good fighter. Um, I think between the two of them, Moreau, uh, Murphy is the more powerful of the two strikers. I think he is the power guy in this matchup. Um, I think he can get really nasty in the clinch. He might be susceptible to takedowns, but I don't see Kulabau necessarily trying to do that in this fight. I think he's going to want to keep it at distance where if he knows Lerone's going to load up and throw something big, he can kind of skirt away and then come in when it's safe. I think if Lerone tries to put it on the cage, make it a clinch battle, uh, Kulabau will get uncomfortable with that really quick, especially with the knees and the elbows he's eating. He's not going to want to stay there too long. And I haven't seen a huge amount of like, high-level grappling ability, um, because at the very least, if, you know, he's a decent wrestler, I think Murphy can can last his way out of that. I think he can at least stone lock him long enough to create the separation and then come back to a striking battle where he has the advantage. So ultimately, I think he's uh, going to win, probably by decision, just because Kulabau, again, he likes to kind of keep that distance and almost run away, so he'll stay safe and then come in when he thinks it's okay and, and that back and forth is going to cause Murphy to kind of chase him and not necessarily yeah. be able to set up the big shots that would finish the fight. But I think he will be winning on the cards because of pressure and because of volume and, and probably round two or three because of damage. Yeah, and just look at the past fight for Murphy. He fought against Gabriel Santos, who had success with the with the grapple on, and he was still able to win that because of the volume and the damage that he was doing to Santos. And there's a difference between wrestling grappling and jiu-jitsu grappling, and that's what Kulabau does. Hey, he's been training in New Zealand. He has a very good range, the kickboxing range, where he, just like you said, he fights from a distance. But then he could clinch up and look at the fight against Melzik Bagdanovich, uh, where yeah. he was. Well, yeah, that name? <laughs> where, uh, I said it wrong, but. Uh, and where he was, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, where he was losing the fight, but then Melzik made that one small uh, like mistake oh, yeah. slipped up, and then Josh Kobal was able to take the back of him and mm -hmm. choke him out. Uh, he, he has that capabilities there. He started his career in the lightweight division. He lost to Jalen Turner, and then he moved back down to a more comfortable featherweight division where he can use that range to just rack up the volume with the leg kicks and. Uh, he has a decent jab. He has a good overhand uh, striking, but he knows how to go in and out of range. But against a guy with explosion in Leroy Murphy, who has that kind of karate style, but he uses those leg it kicks very well. He has the good hand strikes, but he has power in it. Uh, this could go two ways. This could go Leroy Murphy dominating on the feet, landing shots, and then doing a lot of damage to Colbao, or you could see Murphy make a mistake here and there like he did last fight, and maybe Colbao 
uh, taking advantage, clinching up with him, taking the back of Murphy, and possibly uh, uh, submitting him. But I'm going to lean towards the damage inside of things with Murphy because I've seen this uh, with Kobao in the past against guys like uh, Jordan, even though Jordan hit him tied. Uh, but Jordan did damage to him. Jaden Turner did damage to him as well because of the dynamic striking. And that's where I see Leroy Murphy. A lot of people are going with Corbao because of the grappling side of things. I, with knowing what Santos yeah. uh, did, and then Murphy still did a lot of damage to him. And then that, that paid the difference in that fight. I'm going yeah. the guy who's going to do the more volume, the more damage, and the possibility of finishing the fight. Uh, early in this one. I've got Leroy and Murphy. I think they're very favorable with that minus 160. They're getting good odds there, so that's something you want to hammer now on the money line because you, you might be afraid that pe- more people are going to pick them now and then they'll go up yeah. to like the minus 200 uh, area right now, so you want to hammer it now. And The only thing is what I'm going to do afterwards. It depends on what the props are uh, with yeah. the overs, unders, with the KO prop, the decision prop. I tend to think that Murphy's going to finish him in the first or second round uh, because otherwise you might as well just go cool about on this one because laying a fight cool about is going to be the favorite guy with the better cardio because we saw Murphy slow down after the after right. the eight-minute mark. We saw him slow down, and that's where Santos kind of kicked into high gear more with that wrestling yeah. style. So I'm going with Leroy and Murphy here. I like him to finish him in rounds one or two. And then I'm playing uh, the KO prop, and I'm going to play the money line with Murphy. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, for the people thinking Kulabau is going to, you know, take it with the wrestling, he should have done that with Bagzarian. Like, why didn't he do it then? Because Bagzarian has had some issues with, you know, high-level grapplers, and if he had that skill set, the question is why didn't he use it? Either he has yeah. it and he doesn't use it, which, again, is a game plan issue, which it doesn't matter if you've got a badass weapon if you never pull it out, yeah. you know? He's so more, he's like more situation. It's it's more situation or if it right. opens itself, then he attacks it, but he's not going to use it as use his it, primary right. thing. He's not going to attack it yeah. unless, like I said, Melzik uh, slipped and then he saw the opening to take his back he and he jumped took on it. him. Yeah, yeah he, he technically didn't even get a takedown. I'm pretty sure he, no. he nailed Melzik with something and he Melzik went down on his own and he was like, oh, good. And he just yeah, he jumped uh, in boom. for the finish. Right? Yeah, and then he jumped in for the finish and took advantage of it. So, yeah, I think Murphy is the clear-cut guy in oh, this yeah. matchup. Uh, Let's I mean, if you on. want to be real safe, maybe think about yeah. a decision for Murphy just because he is that durable. Just saying. Yep. Let's move on to the next fight on the, the main hey. card. we got a middleweight matchup between Andre Mooney's versus Par Craig. Par Craig is making the move down from light heavyweight to middleweight. You got Mooney's, who's the minus 190 favorite, and then you got Par Craig, the plus 160 underdog. What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, again, this one kind of breaks my heart, too. I like Paul Craig. I'm a fan. He's an amazing jiu-jitsu guy. Like, one of my favorite fights was Craig when he was going up against uh, Nikita Korolov, and it looked like Korolov was just going to dominate him. And then Craig just pulled that triangle out of freaking nowhere and won the fight. It was insane. Um, it, it, that's very much Craig's style. It's either, you know, everything works out for him and he just dominates, or it's just not his night and he is completely outclassed. There's very few fights that are in between those two. You know what I mean? So for Craig, 
Even though I like him, he's got great jujitsu. He can pull those submissions out of thin air. His usual MO is to get way too comfortable going to the ground way too quick. Like if you think about um, the Jamal Hill fight, which he did win, but one of the things uh, with Jamal Hill is, of course, the power in his hands. Paul Craig does have his own power, but instead of standing and trying to catch reads and figure out, ah, how am I going to set something up so I can go to the ground as advantageously as possible, he just kind of ran up and, and grabbed Jamal and then just was like, all right, come here, come in my front guard real quick. Yeah, that's it. Come on down. Like he just immediately dropped. And that's not kind of out of the ordinary for him, especially when he knows he's going to be outclassed by a better striker like Muniz. Um, he does have a tendency to rely on fighting from the bottom too much. And that's why I said that there's not a lot of in between. Either he's really, really good or he's getting dominated. And it's because he relies on that front guard game. You know, if, if somebody gets on top of you and gets that control and you can't find answers out of it, then you're just losing points the whole time until either you run out of gas and get submitted or the time runs out and you just you fell behind on the cards. And it's unfortunate. But the other big thing that here that I think is going to play a huge part, uh, besides Muniz's, you know, well-roundedness, he's a good striker, he's a big boy, uh, he has his own jujitsu skills, he's excellent on, like, top pressure, uh, especially on the cage, and when he gets to the ground, he has his own array of submissions he can always pull out, but... Craig is normally fighting at 205, which means his normal body weight probably somewhere near 220. He is now cutting to 185. If his normal body weight's around 120, that's a, almost a 40-pound weight cut. That's yeah. insane. Like that's if you want to kind of contextualize it, if you think about uh Davison Figueredo back in the old days when uh, he would be like, what, 140 cutting down to 125, and then he would get to the scale on weigh-in day, and he was like dead getting up the stairs. That's that's the kind of weight cut that Paul Craig is going to have to make. Kind of late in his career, he's kind of an older guy now. That's really, really taxing. So it depends. Does he have a good nutritionist? Does he have you know the right information so that he's cutting weight with a long, long ass period of time. That way it's not all constricted within like a month or two. And he's feeling all and of it, the effects at one and it time. Does look, and it does look like a good weight cut. If you look on his Instagram, it looks like it it's, does. Uh, it looks like a more like positive weight cut. Not like one That's where good. it look, it looks like that. He looks more toned in and it looks like he's put the work into it. Yeah. And when I, when I see both these guys, it's, it's like the same guy because they're both high-level jiu-jitsu artists with grappling, and they're both very minimum with their striking. It's going to be a lot of yeah. overhand strikes with these two because we saw Andre Mooney's exposed uh, in his last fight against uh, Brendan, and it was very uh, crazy, I think, because he had that high level. He got into the top 15, and then he just got exposed with the striking aspect of things. He couldn't take the Brendan down, uh, Allen down, and Brendan Allen was able to take him down and submit him later in the fight because he wore on him because of that long frame and that striking out, but it just wore him down. And then when I look at these two, I'm like, okay, they're both the same thing, but the difference will be Paul Craig's going to have the bigger body because he's going to cut down. Even though he's going to cut down, he's going to be able to put that weight back on mm -hmm. and kind of use that to his advantage. And I do like Paul Craig striking a little bit better because yeah. he has showcased that he can knock guys out with his hands. He doesn't do it that much, but he showcased that he can use his hands. Whereas, Andre Moody's, you primarily see him with his grappling side of things, where he's pulling guys down and doing work on the mat. And against Paul Craig, I don't think he's going to be very successful with that, yeah. considering the fact that Paul Craig's known what's going to come because he does the same thing himself. It's just that now he's moving down 
it's going to benefit him with that power going down. And it's going to, like, he might lose a little bit of his uh, gas tank. But I think at the end of the day, it's not going to matter too much in a fight like this where these guys are going to be grappling up with each other. And Andre Mooney's doesn't have the best gas tank either. We we yeah. saw that exposed. So I think in this fight, I love the, the plus money on Paul Craig. I think you're going to get a lot from him. It's already at plus 160. I feel like a lot of people are going to hey, go to his side now. So if you, you're going to go with him, you go with him now before it gets down to like the – uh, the plus 110, almost even mark because he's coming in here from Scotland and he might get right. people just putting money on him. Being close to, yeah, hometown <laughs> because yeah. it's going to be in England. And I could see a situation where may, maybe he submits Moody's. Now that we've seen that mm-hmm. he's been uh, submitted and he's been dominated on the mat against guys that he's supposed to be out grappling against, he, right. Paul Craig might take advantage of it with the extra weight. So I could see him mm-hmm. use that those wide shots, land in a few the stun Moonies, and then I see him taking them down. Paul Craig is a was a third degree black belt, and and he's going to be the guy in this one where this is going to be the one instance where Moonies might not have the better jujitsu uh, mm-hmm. in the matchup here. So I'm still an edge in Paul Craig. I don't think it's a big edge, but I think it's a small edge here. I think it's worth it considering that he's plus 160 and you could get a good mark inside the distance here. But if you don't think he's going to get that sub, which I think he does, I definitely think he's going to edge Moody's out in the volume count. So you definitely go with the decision mark here or the over two and a half rounds. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting case where you could kind of have your cake and eat it too because right now Paul Craig is the plus money. Um, And if you wanted to wait for the live odds, Paul Craig, traditionally, if he doesn't finish the first round, he loses it because, again, he just goes straight to his back, and all the judges see is a dude on his back. So if you kind of wanted to wait and see what Muniz is going to look like against Paul Craig, and more importantly, is Paul Craig fully hydrated? Does he have enough food in his stomach? Is he the Paul Craig we're used to seeing at 205? You can wait that first round, kind of see how things play out, and if it looks like Paul Craig is good to go and Muniz is you know, pretty much the same as he was in his last fight, it's probably yeah. still going to be plus money in the second round. It might not be as big as it is right now, but, I mean, at least it's plus money. So you can kind of balance it out right there. You look at the guys that uh, Paul Craig was were losing to in the late heavyweight division. You look at the last two, Vulcan Oldsmere, he, he lost to him, and Johnny Walker, two guys that are dynamic with their striking and their finishing power. You got uh, Vulcan who has dynamic – uh, uh, boxing with the combinations, and then he throws. I think John, Johnny Walker, who just uh, caught him with the with that backhand fist, and he's and with the thing with Johnny Walker, it's always been can he control the chaos, and, and then he was able to do it there and use it to his advantage. He's not going to have to worry about that with Andre Moody's. This is no, this is either going to be a, a very boring fight where you might see a finish in the second or third round. Or this might be a, a one where I think Paul Craig wins with the striking. You just never know because both these guys are high liver, grappling artist, uh, jiu-jitsu yeah. style. So it could be one or the other. I just tend to uh, lean towards Paul Craig because of the weight, the weight and I'm, I like his overhand striking better. I think that he would have the better chance of knocking out Mooney's compared to Mooney's with his striking towards Craig. Yeah, so that's why I feel like Craig is still going to do the grappling because, yeah. again, like like the Nikita, uh, Nikita Korolov fight. Nikita Korolov has made no secret about his wrestling. 
But Craig yeah. was still fine with like, come on in my front guard. Like he didn't give a shit and he still won, even though in that beginning of that fight, the, the, the beginning of that first round looks like he was just going to get dominated. Um, it might be a similar situation here where he's aware of Muniz's grappling ability, but normally when you get two high level grapplers, they respect it enough to stay on the feet. I don't think Paul Craig's going to do that. I think yeah. he's not going to really care. I think he's going to be like, come yeah. on in my front guard. And again, that's why you can kind of just play the live odds and wait for that first round to pass. I don't yeah. think those plus odds are going anywhere in one round. No. I do think, you know, Paul Craig could pull something out because that's what he does. That's why I like Paul Craig. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the next fight. We got three fights left on uh, this UFC Linden Karn. We got a men's featherweight matchup between Nathaniel Wood versus Andre Feely. Wood is the minus 200 favorite. Feely is the plus 160 underdog. What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, I would actually kind of put this one, if I was a better, uh, if I was an odds setter, I'd kind of set it a little bit more out of pick them or at least kind of close the gap on the odds a little bit more. Um, I feel like Feely, he's an effective striker. He's very durable, quick hands, good movement in the feet. Um, he can grapple when he wants to, and he can hit those takedowns, even though that's not his usual MO. It's kind of in the back pocket for him. Um, most of his UFC victories have come by decision. So that tells me he's not the big power striker, but he is accurate. He can put points up on the board when he needs to. Um, and, you know, he's he's a fighter who can put in for the long haul and still be okay. And we're not worried about, like, is there a gas tank issue? Is there an output issue necessarily? Like, he's, he's kind of uh, going to use his experience to his advantage here, I think. Whereas Wood has good wrestling, good takedown ability. Uh, he's very active, and he has very good pressure in his game. Part of that is because he does have some pretty good power and he makes his opponents respect that power pretty early on. So that way when he's marching forward with leg kicks and crosses and stuff like that, his opponent is going to be wary of that. So they tend to give up ground instead of try to stand and bang. Uh, that's not necessarily Andre Feely though. I feel like Andre Feely, if you, you know, kind of step to him, he's a little bit more comfortable trading leather for leather uh, because of that experience. Um, now, Having said that, Wood doesn't come across uh, quite there in terms of the power striker. If I had to give a power advantage, I really couldn't give one. These guys seem very even in terms of like, you know, neither of them are really big power guys, um, which is why like on the feet, it's kind of hard to call it. It would be who shows up in better shape, who shows up better hydrated, better, you know, nutrition, more food in their stomach because they can both do pretty good output. I feel like Nathaniel Wood just naturally has better output than Andre Feely does. Like for comparing the best night to the best night, you know what I'm saying? Um, but having said that, I feel like there is a very real possibility that Feely could have a better chance of knocking Wood out than Wood has of knocking him out. Um, yeah. But Wood could carry this to a decision victory just on the wrestling alone. Again, Andre Feely has the wrestling. He just doesn't use it. It's in the back pocket. The trade-off there is that he's not used to using it at this high level. Wood is. So if you have to press him, you know, to taking this guy and making him use his backup plan when it's your primary plan, who's going to have more experience using it at this level? It's probably going to be Wood. So, you know, I kind of bet on the over two and a half rounds because even if Andre Feely does finish Wood, it's probably going to be later in the fight, like a late second, early third round knockout, something like that. Um, so and, and I think it's safe to do the over two and a half rounds. And when, and when you look at Andre Feely, he, he had the knockout in his debut. And since then, like you said, he's only won by decision, but then he's been knocked yeah. out once or yeah. twice. He has low output. 
and usually he's good at using the distance game to pick apart his opponent to take it to the decision and then he mixes uh, that grappling with the, the strike and it, it's more of a jiu-jitsu side of things he's been working out more uh, of course he trains at team alpha Merrill, so you have that footprint on andre billy but then you look at nathaniel wood you look at everybody he's far and he's looked well i think he's only lost twice in his last seven or eight fights uh, he has a he has a very extensive boxing background, and then he has the wrestling. In his last fight, he had 80, I think, strikes connected, but then he had five takedowns as well. So he knows how to utilize both together. He'll, when he's fighting from distance, he'll land the combinations. He's very good at putting together two to three strikes together at once, but then he knows when to look for openings for the takedowns, and he might get those with Andre Philly because Andre Philly is a guy that doesn't know how to mix his grappling and his striking well together right now. He, he wants to fight from a distance and then wait for his opponents to open up to then use it, wait for them to use a mistake, then to go fluently. And I've just seen so much more from Nathaniel Wood. He yeah. he had his way with uh, Charles Jardine. He beat him. That's the, I believe that's who he took down five times was Charles Jardine. And then he won that and landed eight strikes. His one loss was to Casey Kenny, where he still landed 130 strikes and had one takedown. It was just that Casey Kenny had 130 strikes and had two takedowns. So he barely edged out uh, Nathaniel Wood in that one. But he learned from that fight, and he used that. He has to get a little bit higher of an output, and he has to utilize his grappling more, which he did like I said in the last fight with the five takedown. So I see a situation where in this one where Wood's the better striker, he's the better grappler. Andre Philly might be the better power puncher and finisher, but I still think everything else goes with Nathaniel Wood in this one. So I like him by decision in this fight. I don't think he finishes in, uh, Philly, but I think he dominates in the grappling. I think he dominates with the striking, and it's clear cut to me. This is why he's the minus 200 because he has two big things yes, on the side. And then you kind of minimize it just a little bit by the fact that Philly is the more experienced finisher in the fight. So going with Nathaniel Wood by decision in this one. I do like the over two and a half rounds on this one. And sure. the only thing that worries me is the fact that Philly is prone to being knocked out in fights. But luckily, we haven't seen Wood do that. A lot of his fights end by decision. So that's why I'm comfortable going with Nathaniel Wood by money line and to go with him by decision. But if you want to wait to knock down that minus 200, maybe you get lucky and you go live bet after round one. But then you're kind of challenging yourself because Nathaniel Wood is a fast starter and he has good cardio. So if you do that, you got to watch out for the fact that maybe Wood gets that first round and then that minus 200 kicks up to minus 300 so my impressor uh like option would be to lock down that minus 200 now and then to go to him by decision because it's going to be close to even odds yeah. for that yeah i could definitely see the decision just on the wrestling alone yeah. um i mean sometimes andre feely comes out you know and he's firing on all cylinders so you might potentially have a situation where feely comes out super strong yeah. Um, but you don't necessarily see a first-round swing in the odds, just like with Ilya Tepora and Jai Herbert. That's how good Nathaniel's wrestling is. I don't think that if Andre Feely's coming out, and even if he looks like he's going to finish Nathaniel Wood, if Nathaniel yeah. Wood makes it to the bell, 
I don't necessarily see a big swing in the odds, so it kind of makes sense to lock that that money line bet early. Yeah, definitely so. So uh, we're both on uh, wood in this one, and then this leads up to the co-main event of the evening. We only had two fights left on this card. We got a women's uh, flyweight matchup between Molly McCann versus uh, Julia Stoyanko. We got McCann, the minus 350 heavy favorite, and then we got Stoyanko, the heavy plus 260 underdog. Uh, what are your thoughts on this co-main event? Yeah, it kind of makes sense why, you know, Sterling Yurenko is the dog here. Um, even though Molly McCann is, is really, she's a brawler. Like, you know, people talk about her striking game a lot. It's not the most technical. She does have power because she does kind of eventually just go, fuck it. And she just throws no matter what. Uh, she has no problem getting real grimy, real dirty, uh, and just making it a really agonizing fight for her opponent, even if that means she has to take damage in the process. Um, however, she has shown a susceptibility to grappling, particularly submissions. Um, I think inside of the UFC, uh, a lot of her uh, losses have come by decision, but she does still have two, uh, two other losses. They're both submission losses. So her ground game is something she doesn't necessarily keep up with all that much. Um, Nostro is a submission specialist. But shockingly enough, since she's arrived, she has been struggling in the UFC. She is one and five. Now, with somebody with that with that credentialed of a ground game, she should be doing much better. And I think what it comes down to is she just doesn't have that dog in her. You know, her biggest weakness is her durability and her striking. It, it it's really not there at all. And she's going up against someone who is willing to brawl, willing to make the the fight dirty and agonizing and painful for their opponent. Um, versus somebody who it seems like, you know, the minute they get somebody like that, somebody who's got that dog in them, they just kind of fold. So even though on paper you might be thinking, oh, Sterlianenko, she's a very credentialed jiu-jitsu fighter, and, you know, she's a submission specialist, I, I don't think she's necessarily got what it takes to, you know, meet Molly McCann where she's at, put her in a situation where she's uncomfortable, and then secure the submission victory. Uh, I think this this is one of those fights where, like, on paper, it tells one tale, but when we get into the cage, it's going to be a very different story. Um, and it's weird because in many ways, both of these fighters are kind of each other's natural enemies, right? Like Molly McCann sucks at the submission game, and Sterling Oka is great at it. Sterling Enko sucks at the, the striking game, and Molly McCann's amazing at it. So most people, I feel like if you looked at it on paper, they might think, well, intuitively, that's a pick em. But that's that's the difference between Molly McCann and Sterling Enko is it's the dog in the fighter here. And I feel like, you know, what's going to happen a huge is difference. McCann's going to walk huge through it. Yeah, and there's a huge difference between jiu-jitsu grappling and wrestling grappling. Wrestling, and when you yeah. watch that, and McCann fight against Blanchfield, Blanchfield had the wrestling uh, grappling, and she was very Dominated successful yeah. with that because you're attacking your opponent a, a certain way, attacking at the hips, taking the fight down, whereas jiu-jitsu yeah. – you're more so trying to use the, the body lock to leg trip and trying to force them down. And then Blanchfield has better striking than Storyanko. Her strike is very limited. And that's where I think, even though that the, the grapple and the deficiencies are going to favor Storyanko if she tries to grapple, uh, McCann's going to have an easier time defending it. And with oh, her striking, which is very well. Good defense. Yeah, yeah, and she was laying good shots against Blanchfield before she got uh, – uh, finished in that fight 
I think it, that you got to lean towards McCann, and that's why it's a heavy okay. favorite because of the deficiencies in yeah. the striking compared to the deficiencies for McCann in her grappling defense. I think that's where the big difference is, and that's why I'm favoring Molly Can. I like the uh, under one and a half in this one because I do think there's that options for her to finish Storyanko on the feet early, but yeah. with the one, under one and a half, it gives you a little bit more time there because I do predict it's going to be a first round knockout. We've seen the past couple of fights when she yeah. won, she's gotten that knockout and she's put herself in uh, situations where she could do it from different avenues. Like you saw the back fist one that she landed. You've seen her uh, just. Uh, use the box and the land a lot of damage and finish her opponent and get on top of them. And then I just don't see the the striking to kind of keep Molly McCann at bay. I see yeah. Storyanko trying to force things within the uh, the clinch up close yeah. so she could kind of push on her. I just don't see that happen. So I'm going with Molly McCann by finish in this oh, one. Yeah. I'm already staying away from anything in the Ben aspect. If you're going to go with it, you, you're kind of forced to go with the under one and a half, hoping that she gets the hoping that she gets the finish and then go from there. Yeah, I mean, even if you're kind of nervous about playing the under one and a half, there's always the under two and a half rounds just to be safe. And that's that's, you know, a good option to have in the back pocket if you feel like Molly McCann can finish, but you're just not sure if it's going to be a first or second round finish. There's always that un, uh, under two and a half prop bet that would be a good one. Or if you want to be super, super safe, it just, you know, it finishes inside the distance. That's for sure going to happen. We just aren't sure if it's like a first round or a second round finish. But, yeah, yeah Molly McCann is going to walk right through her. No problem. Yeah, like you, you do have options. Like you got inside the distance. You got KOTKO that will kind of make it a little bit good. There's just yeah. the best you're probably going to get is close to even possibly with those with it being minus 350 so you kind of have yeah, to mix and match what what you do unless the odds are hope you're hoping that she lasts a little bit longer and then you could get something good with the over one and a half but then you're kind of teetering with oh what you get what you can do on top of that and i don't think that storyanko has the firepower to last unless she yeah. can clinch up along the cage with her for a little bit take some damage and then get this play into the second round. But even then, I think the deficiencies are too high in this one. I think Maya McCann should have her way with uh, Sterlianko with this yeah. with this matchup. Yeah, my main concern would be even if Sterlianko did want to tie up, Molly McCann is going to just throw elbows, throw knees, grind, you know, mitts to face, just make it awful to where Sterlianko yeah. is not going to have the, any real advantage. Just, just look at the opponents. Uh, uh, Sterlianko got grounded and pounded by Chelsea Chandler. She lost to Alexis Davis by decision, lost to Avila by submission, lost to Santos by decision, and her only win was Jessica Rose Clark by early submission, and we've seen that that was that Rose Clark is as an issue as. McMahon lost to Blanche Fear by submission, lost to Larry Fritzen in, in decision, but then she ran off that three-fight win streak against Ji Ying King, uh, Luana Carolina and Hannah Goldie, where she had two straight KO finishes early in those fights. Yeah, yeah, let's move on to the main event of the evening. Uh, we got, yeah, we got a men's heavyweight battle between Tom Asmal returning to the octagon versus Marcin Tabora 
Aspinall is the minus 450 huge favorite, and Marcin Tabora is the plus 350 underdog, but he's coming in on a win streak. What are your thoughts on this main event? Let's go, my boy. Aspinall is back. Like, I absolutely understand why he is a massive favorite because, like, that's how good he is. The, the biggest loss he had, he beat himself, and that was in the Curtis Blades thing where he took a weird step back and tore his ACL. Curtis Blades didn't even touch him in that fight, I'm pretty sure, because it was only, like, 15 seconds. They were squaring up, getting ready to go at each other, and then, boom, it was over. So I have been long awaiting Tom Aspinall's return, just like I feel like everybody has. He is one of the division's bright, shining stars. Um, I think if he keeps going on the trajectory he has been going and he keeps developing, he could be a serious threat to a guy like John Jones. He is that well-rounded. He has power. And more importantly, he's very good at blending the styles all together and utilizing it as one cohesive unit, which is kind of hard to do in, in the UFC. You got to got a lot of guys who have like uh, skill imbalances. They're good in one area, not so good in the other. So they're hesitant to try to blend those areas because that would necessarily mean you have to expose your weaknesses. Tom Aspinall doesn't have too many of those. He's a big boy. He's got good striking. He's got fast timing. He's got good gauging. He can go to the ground. He can go to the cage. He can stand on the feet. Um, I think that uh, Marcin Tabora is one of those guys who has a skill imbalance. You know, he's really good when it comes to that wrestling and that grappling. His hands are only okay. They're not bad, but they're not the best either. I think he really does kind of use his hands to try to close distance. And then once he gets like he feels like he's comfortable, he will try to, you know, close the distance, secure that clinch, move to your back. And that's where really the majority of his game shines through is when he gets that back control. Um, so when you look at these two guys stylistically, I feel like Aspinall has the better blend of skills and he can use them together. Whereas Marcin Tabura, one of his skills is largely vestigial. It's a striking is more set, more there to set up his grappling rather than, you know, actually be effective at striking. So I think the way it's probably going to go down is he has to stand with, you know, Tom Aspinall at the beginning of the round. because He doesn't get to start on Aspinall's back. And that's the big challenge is how's Tabora going to find that back? Um, Tom Aspinall is a much bigger opponent than, than Tabor is used to. Um, and he's also very skilled everywhere. Even if Marcin Tabor gets his back, Tom Aspinall is not out of answers. He can make this very difficult for Tabora. Tabora has been on a winning streak, not taking anything away from him on that. But that's just how good Tom Aspinall is. And he's got very high fight IQ. So I feel like this one... Uh, Tabora is going to be invested in the long haul. So he's going to be really going heavy on the, uh, on the wrestling aspect of things. But the problem is going to be, is he's going to have to invest really early on chopping at Aspinall's legs. He's going to have to rack up like 15 to 20 leg kicks in that first round to adequately slow Aspinall down enough to really, you know, get a, sh a shot at securing his back and having Aspinall not escape too quickly. Because, again, that's where Marcin Tabor wants to stay. And he needs probably, like, in terms of total uh, mat time to control that back, he probably needs at least three to four minutes of solid control so that he can get back there, figure out how your defense works, pick it apart, and then meanwhile he's just peppering you with punches, trying to add up control time, trying to add up points on the card. Aspinall's not going to give that to him, though. So unless Marcin Tabor comes out and starts immediately attacking the lower body, cutting angles, making sure he's not staring right down the barrel of uh, Aspinall's power, he's going to have a very hard fight ahead of him. And 
So you got one guy who basically has to have a perfect fight versus Tom Aspinall, who has options. He can he can play this fight a lot of different ways and find success. So obviously, I think Aspinall is probably going to win. I think he could win any way he wants, really. Uh, maybe less on the submission side, but definitely uh, a KO. And I think he could grind out a decision. Uh, just because if Martian Tabora doesn't invest in slowing down that lower body, he'll find his way out of that back control. He'll find a way out of those situations where normally Tabora's uh, opponents just don't have any answers. So I think it's definitely safe to play over three and a half rounds on this. Um, if you're really high on Ty Tom Aspinall, maybe you can go for like a KO victory and the over. That way you kind of cover both your bases. Um, because he is against a guy, Martian Tabora, who is good at slowing down opponents but I think he's going to come into this with the wrong strategy because we don't see him always necessarily think, let me chop at the legs. He's more like, well, let me get on the back and make them carry my weight. So I feel like if he tries to go that route, I think Aspinall is going to have more answers than he's used to. I, mean, I think your mic's muted. And, and he opens himself up in certain situations of fights where he's been knocked out. Like in his past, he's been knocked out four times. Derek Lewis... Uh, Augustus Sakai and Shamir Abdur Kamal have all knocked him out in, in the past, and then he got knocked That's out a couple times. Oh, he can't the, knock uh, anybody out. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then he got knocked out once or twice in M1 Challenge. So, and that's with the wow. the way that he game plans certain times where he leaves himself open. But then you look at a guy like uh, Tom Aspinall, who has showcased that he can knock people out in the first round. He's been out of the first round, I think, just the one time uh, against uh, – what's his name? Uh, yeah, he's – one second. He's been out of the – yeah, one time against Andre Olaski. I mean, and that's because yeah. he utilized uh, the wrestling uh, yeah. halfway through after a barrage where he was just done in – Orlaski and Orlaski was able to withdrew it, and then the start of the second round, he goes goes for a running takedown, and he forces them to tap out right away. We have not seen that uh, that grappling side of things too much until we saw him against Alexander Volkov, and he was very dominant against a guy that has a very big reach and height, and he was dominant with that, dominant with the hands, it, like it's just the way that he like trains. He trains his boxing with Tyson Fury, so he has the hands. He has the quick hands. He trains with killers that uh, with the grappling. He, he has that wrestling background, just like I said before. He hasn't had to utilize it, so we really don't have too much tape on it because of it, because he he doesn't get out of the first round at all, except for the Olaski fight, and he's going up against a guy that, yes, he's good at kind of minimizing things because he, he wants to get it into close quarters, with this grappling, take the back. He has decent striking uh, on the stomach. He has decent grappling for the back. He can kind of, he can force uh, it to go to a decision, but he has been able to get hit in fights. And Aspinall is a quick striker, great jab, great hand speed. He can mix things up from the body to the head. He can slow him down. I see this one ending in round one. I, I see, I've seen why Marcin Tabor. Is on a two-fight winning streak, but the, uh, because of who he fought, he beat uh, Blagoy Ivanov, who just got uh, handed his pink slip in the UFC, and then he beat really? Alexander yeah. Romanov, who, yeah, Alexander Romanov, who was having his way early and then slowed down. Yeah. And then we've kind of seen if Alexander Romanov can't take you down, he has 
uh, he has issues in fights, and then he tends to get the fights away in the last couple of fights, and then he kind of yeah. improved that three fights later, a couple a couple of weeks ago. So he showed a little bit of improvement in that. But I see Tom Aspinall having his way with the strike, and he's going to be a step uh, faster than Tabor. He's going to be able to block any of the clinch attempts that Tabor is going to do. And you might see Aspinall use the uh, the wrestling at times to take down Tabor. The only thing that I'm hesitant is is what shape Aspinall is going to be after that horrific injury that he suffered right away in that fights against Curtis Blades. That would have been a great fight, and it got killed oh, by yeah. that that check, uh, the leg kick check, I believe it was. In he, he just stepped wrong. He literally yeah. stepped wrong. Like that's why yeah. I said he beat himself because it wasn't even like he got hit and it was like a weird. No, he just he. I think he overtrained. His muscles were too tight. And then he just overextended, took a weird step, something popped, and like that yeah. was it. But you're right, like yeah. that's that is a tough injury to recover from. Now, before he left the cage, he was on a trajectory where he was slimming down, he was toning yep. up, he was looking really good. I think since he's had so much time, it's more likely he's going to come back like that. Like Tom Aspinall has very high fight IQ. His father, his trainer, yeah. also very high fight IQ. I doubt his dad would let him in that ring if he was coming in, you know, looking like he did on his debut. So yeah. I, I feel a little bit safe there just because who he surrounds himself with, you know? And, and then this return to the octagon is going to be one day away from exactly a year from his last fight. And that fight was, of course, I believe his fight was in London as well. I believe that fight night yeah, that against Curtis Blade. Yeah. yeah, it was in London. So his past three fights have been in London. So he's had that, uh, that benefit home of not having to travel. Yeah, home field advantage. And not much traveling since he, that's where he keeps his camp at. And he has a full year to recover from that injury. And that's what you want. You don't want to come back too soon. He didn't do that. He took his time. It got a perfect opponent for him a year back. I think he should be in good shape. I think the first couple, a minute or two might be a little bit rusty, shaky. But after that, I think he's going to be clicking with yeah. his striking. I think the level of competition is just so vastly different here. I think if it wasn't for Tabora having – a, a good grappling in situations, then this would be like an onslaught, in my opinion. Like, I, I, I do see if uh, Aspinall gets hesitant in the fight, maybe Tabor might have a chance in here. I just think that he his, his striking is just so fluid. He lands a lot of combinations. He mixes in uh, the, the grappling. We just haven't seen it as much because he dominates so well in the first round with the striking. He can knock his opponents out. That Volkov fight worry uh, changed yeah. my mind on his, his, and That's everything crazy. that he could do because he just dominated so much, took him down with ease, and then finished him in the first round. So I got Tom Aspinall win this one in the first round. Of course, at my 450 uh, money line is just not good to bet because you're already not getting okay. your return on the fight. But I do like Tom Aspinall by first round KO. In this one, I think they're going to get a lot back. If you feel like maybe he gets the sub because he has done that twice in fights, maybe you just do inside the distance and then go round one. But I do like the round one prop, the inside the distance prop, and then the KO prop. And then, of course, if you do want to hope that Marcin Tabora has, it takes the first round because of the, uh, the restiness of Tom Aspinall, maybe there's that chance. 
attack the uh, attack it live after round one if it happens. Yeah. But then you're playing a waiting game. So I definitely think you yeah. want to get round one and then inside the distance and KO because I definitely yeah. think this is going to be a, a finish in the first couple rounds because I think the, the skill level is just vastly different. I think Tom Aspinall yeah. is on his way up and Marcin DeBoer yes. is either on his way down or he's going to teeter at that spot for a couple more fights. But I'm leaning heavily on Aspinall in this main event. Yeah, no, I, I would capitalize on the prop bets early, especially if some of them are, yeah. you know, closer to even money or even plus money. Like on some of these, they might even be plus. Uh, just because, like, if you're waiting to have the live odds swing, I don't think it's going to happen. Like, that's how good Aspinall has been. He's demonstrated he's good everywhere. Tabora hasn't done that. I feel like even if Tabora goes out there, dominates the first round, I don't think it moves the needle. I think the second round live odds will still have Tom Aspinall as the favorite with some pretty heavy minus money there. So uh, you got to kind of get on this one early just because of how one-sided this fight is. Like, it's it's... I mean, everybody kind of knows how this is going to go, you know? Definitely so. But other than that, that wraps things up for this uh, UFC London. Tom Aspinall versus Marcin Tabora picks and predictions show by Cage by Q. Once again, I want to thank Miles Long for, uh, for coming on, making his return to the podcast. He will likely come back on next week for UFC 291, which is going to be headlined. Uh, uh, of course, by uh, Justin Gagey versus Justin Poirier for the BMF belt. What a fight that's going to be. But other than that, do you have any parting words for us before oh, we man, It's good to be back. I miss doing this. Yeah. I miss watching these fights and all that. This is this is fun. I'm looking forward to next week, even though it's for a fake belt. But whatever, it's still going to be a fun <laughs> fight. <laughs> Exactly. But before we get going, oh, once again, this is Cage My Q. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Twitch. And please follow the Bloodline Entertainment Network on YouTube at Bloodline ENT. All of our content is on there as well. And then please uh, smash the like button, hit, hit the subscribe button down below, and hit us up in the comment section and let me know what you think of our picks and predictions for UFC London. But other than that, that'll wrap things up. Uh, please check out the Bloodline and uh, Entertainment Network's uh, uh, gear. We got merch. Uh, all you got to do is go to bloodlinenetwork.com, hit the merch button, and it'll take you to the Bloodline uh, th thread where our shirts, we have uh, towels, we got all sorts of merch for you to try out. I got the black uh, T-shirt. With the, uh, with the line on it. Definitely don't want to miss out on any of the merch that we have out. We're on the rise now. We're over 320 subs now in three months. And we're heading towards that goal of uh, 500 right now. So definitely help Let's us out. Go. Support the brand. And follow us on uh, YouTube. Follow our website at www.bloodlinenetwork.com. We got a lot of articles out. We got all sorts of podcasts covering wrestling, MMA, anime. We got watch alongs. We got go. we we got cinema where we got Graydon doing the director's cut where he reviews uh, movies that are coming out or had just come out. And then we even have a new podcast where they're covering true crime. So definitely check out nice. all the content we have every day of the week on the Bloodline Entertainment Network. And we'll see you next week for UFC 291 
picks and prediction show with me and Miles. So other than that, Ariva Jerchi, have a good weekend, and we'll see you guys. For real, y'all.